0: NATO is alarmed about Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's borders. And foreign ministers from the alliance are meeting today in Latvia to discuss a response. About a month ago, the US reported that Russian troops were gathering in large number in several cities near the Russian border with Belarus and Ukraine. Russia says it is entitled to station its troops on its territory and they pose no threat. But NATO and Ukraine say Moscow may be preparing to launch an attack.
1: Ukraine responded with its own show of force, military exercises in its border region.
0: We have complete control over our borders, and we are fully prepared for any
2: escalation.
1: NATO pledges its support to Ukraine and is warning against Russian aggression.
3: It is also clear that if Russia uses force against Ukraine, uh, that will have costs, that will have consequences.
1: Tensions are rising between Russia and the West over Kiev's renewed bid to join the NATO military alliance. For the Kremlin, any expansion of military aid to Ukraine is a red line.
0: We can't ignore these threats to the security of Russia. We will react to them as appropriate, adequately to the situation.
1: Ukraine already had a war scare with Russia earlier this year. In April, Russia deployed tens of thousands of troops, aircraft and missiles within striking distance of Ukraine. Moscow called it a military exercise, and after weeks of posturing, said the troops were being withdrawn. Despite several attempts at peace talks, it's a fight with no end in sight.
0: President Biden warning Vladimir Putin a Russian invasion of Ukraine would bring swift and severe costs. Russia will be held accountable if it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do, etc. Well, let me tell you about Vladimir Putin. He is a poker player, and he's cunning, he's opportunistic, and he is aggressive, and he looks for tells. So I'm sure he was watching exactly what the president said yesterday. He also can smell weakness, and he views President Biden as weak and ineffective. First of all, the Ukrainians are freaked out about this. This is something that President Biden seems to do with troubling frequency. SAY ONE THING AND THEN HAVE TO COME BACK AND CLEAN IT UP AND SAY NO, NO, WHAT WE REALLY MEANT WAS THIS. VLADIMIR PUTIN RESPECTS STRENGTH, NOT STATEMENTS.
1: Dozens of Ukrainians are dead, including soldiers this morning, as Russia has launched a full-scale inv- invasion into Ukraine. People are trying to flee Ukraine, sparking chaos, large traffic jams within the country. U.S. troops in Poland now reportedly headed to the border to help as Americans and other nationals try to escape.
2: I think this is the worst possible scenario we could have imagined. Uh, you know, we, uh, Everybody was hoping and praying that, that Putin was bluffing that this was a way to try to get concessions. Um, The fact that he has uh, invaded a foreign country, killed innocent civilians, uh, redrawn the map, and violated the sovereignty of Ukraine is a total game changer as far as international peace and security is concerned.
1: Um,
3: First, there is no such thing as minor, middle, or uh, major invasion. Invasion is an invasion.
1: The capital Kiev has been the clear target in the last 24 hours. And Russian forces are closing in on the city of Kiev itself, moving in from the northwest and the east. The city of Kharkiv, just near the Russian border, is gradually being surrounded. While to the south, Russia has made some big territorial gains just over the border from Crimea. Uh,
3: You know, what really is shocking is that we are repeating the history of the Second World War. When everybody was playing games with Hitler, when he just invaded small Poland and everybody thought, okay, Hitler will not be hungry anymore after he takes a piece of Poland. You remember what happened next? Hitler didn't stop until he was stopped. Putin is the same. He will not stop until he is stopped. Stop the war while it's happening here in Ukraine, on our land.
0: This aggression cannot go unanswered. If it did, the consequences for America would be much worse. America stands up to bullies. We stand up for freedom. This is who we are. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine.
3: I would feel that I'm betrayed and the world is just running falling into 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 the hell. And this is just catastrophe not only for Ukraine but for the whole world. This is the collapse of democracy. Right now again, we are ready to die for the sake of our freedom and independence the the and just to be Ukrainian. We will do everything is possible to survive, yes, and to help the world to, to stop Putin. But we need your help too. We, we should do this together. We need peacekeepers. To make peace here from the West, because what Putin says he is doing he's keeping here or something. Mm-hmm. He is killing us and says he, just, he brings peace to Ukraine, right? Stop him, please. Mr. President Biden, if you stop Russian aggression, if you stop aggression of Vladimir Putin right now with a very serious, with a very concrete decision to intervene immediately with all the needed forces and prevent the genocide and prevent catastrophe and prevent the Third World War, you will be the best man in the world. You will be a person who will be a part of big history. The president who stopped the global catastrophe, who prevented the collapse of democracy in the world, the collapse of humanity today yes how you behave because if you wait for some more days for some more weeks that will be collapsed that will be you will be defeated we will go down all of us i mean all of us in the world
2: the fact that the ukrainian people have fought this long and have been successful this long in holding back the russian army well that's a sign of leadership folks it's a lot better than what we got
3: Всім добрий вечір. Лідер фракції – тут. Голова Офісу Президента – тут. Прем'єр-міністр Шмигаль – тут. Подаляк тут. Президент – тут. Всі ми – тут. Наші військові – тут. Громадяни суспільства – тут. Всі ми – тут. Захищаємо нашу незалежність, нашу державу. Так буде далі. Слава нашим захисникам, слава нашим захисницям. Слава Україні!
0: Слава. Героям. Героям слава!
2: back to the show folks Uh, as you can imagine and as per usual I've got plenty to say about this whole Ukraine thing right you've been waiting for it right Uh, I'm gonna talk about uh, you know what it's all about what it means and quite frankly what it means personally to me uh, and maybe to you and hopefully to the people in this country who have perspectives uh, on the ground perspectives that have always made this country the greatest nation the world has ever known and as if you didn't know You're listening to the unapologetically accurate and sometimes abrasive righteous opinion that is protected by our First Amendment, guaranteed and enforced by our Second Amendment. That's right. Welcome to another episode of The Last Stand, folks. The first and last bastion of freedom of speech and the righteous opinion of yours truly. I'm Wild Bill of the Wild Bill fame. Uh, Buckle up and hold on to your butts, folks, because it's time to put righteous boot to communist ass. This one's going to go long, folks, because I want to try and navigate some of the history, some of the differing points of view that, uh, that the American people have had about Russia's aggression into Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine people, the national interests of America, or our perception of our national interest uh, here in America, and whether or not we ought to be doing more for the government and the people of Ukraine. But, of course, before we get into all of that, we have the listener report to get into always a good time with the listener report, isn't it? Things have changed here and there. And of course, we have yet another new listener to the show who obviously wasn't allowed to go to the pub and decided to tune in. So without further ado, buckle up, hold on to your butts. Let's get into it. I'm going to tell you, folks, things move pretty damn quick in the world. And as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, I knew I had to get back in here as soon as possible. Because, as you remember, I had suggested that the threat from Russia was nothing to worry about at that time. And that it was unlikely that Putin would want to get into a prolonged fight with Ukraine, or anyone else for that matter, uh, due to its own declining economy and the absolute outrage from the U.S. and the European Union and NATO. That he would have to withstand, right? Uh, we, you know, there were many people who thought the same thing. Okay, much smarter people than me, who thought the same thing. Uh, it turns out that we were wrong. Okay, um, and that's you know, look, I was looking at it from a, a different point of view, a different context. Okay, uh, all of the things that I mentioned. Okay, because you know, Russia's economy was on the skids. Okay. The ruble had hit the floor, all right? Uh, And quite frankly, you know, I just thought that he did not want to risk uh, having to deal with the, you know, the European Union, uh, the United States, the response from the world, and, of course, you know, the further deterioration of his economy as the world took action against him. But, of course, I was looking at it uh, from a logical point of view, all right, from an economic, you know, having an economic foundation in why I thought the way I did, uh, what I failed to do was look at it from a historical context. Okay. And even recent history going back to uh, 2014 and before as Russia took bite after bite of Ukraine and that region. Okay. Now, the Biden administration, to its credit, had been warning of a possible invasion since at least December of 2021, right? Uh, and, of course, we were threatening the use of sanctions to stop any invasion, okay? But, of, you know, of course, being as short-sighted as the left is, the Biden administration failed to do anything concrete to deter Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. And at every step of the way, for a good while, and even to, to today— I think. It seems that Biden's policies and responses to this invasion are what I would characterize as too little, too late. Russia had been amassing troops and tanks on the border of Ukraine for quite some time, all right, in 2021, claiming that it was, you know, conducting military exercises and war gaming uh, in Belarus. Now, I think we can all say that Russia and Belarus had been lying about the whole reason why there were so many troops on the border region around Ukraine. All right. Vladimir Putin lied. And uh, like I said, a lot of us were bamboozled by the whole thing. Okay. Even in the press that reported on the Russian troop movements uh, as being part of a military training exercise conducted by Russia. Okay. And of course, as the concern over Russian troop buildups around Ukraine increased And many of us believe that as we uncovered Putin's statements and assertions about the buildup, that Russia was, you know, kind of saber-rattling, okay, demanding, uh, making demands of NATO and the West in general. As it became apparent that Putin's true reasons for troop and military assets around Ukraine were anything but a military exercise or even a demonstration or a protestation to NATO in that region, Ukraine's voice in Vladimir Zelensky became louder In its concerns and its predictions became truer each passing day. And here we are today, folks. Okay? We're fifteen days into an invasion into Ukraine by Russia. Okay? And you know, when that happened, it didn't take long for us to realize that Putin's ambitions in the region have nothing to do with its own national security or even its adversity to any kind of NATO expansion. Okay? Now, a lot's changed since the beginning of the invasion. And there's been a few surprises uh, along the way. And, of course, the longer that this goes on, the more painful things become here at home. There's very concrete reasons as to why we're dealing with the inflation and the increases in costs from everything from soup to nuts. Okay? And it has everything to do with the short-sightedness and the ideological madness that is the Democrat Party. Okay? Okay? And, of course, you know, to understand why Putin is moving so aggressively and and maniacally in Ukraine and always seems to be two steps ahead of any U.S., NATO, or U.N. response, we really have to go back in time to when the Soviet Union existed as a communist power in the world and as an enemy to all that represented liberty and prosperity. Now, I'm going to dig into this as much as I can. OK, that, and that's why I say this is going to go long. All right. Uh, but we really need to understand what's truly being played out here. And I really want to ask, uh, you know, questions about, you know, where American opinion is about Ukraine and what we're doing uh, and what people think we ought to be doing. And, and quite frankly, you know, people's opinions about what we ought not to be doing. OK. And, and as per usual, I'm going to give you my honest opinions. As as to what we're doing, why we're doing it, or what we're not doing, and why we're not doing it, uh, and I want to expose the absolute hypocrisy and the cowardice of the left in this administration, from my perspective. Okay, uh, and honestly, you know, there's some people on the right as well that's going to fit right into that. Okay, uh, but first, as as promised, I'm going to get into that's right the listener report now. I can't tell you to this day the real numbers of people listening to the show. The analytic features on this program only deals with percentages, okay? Uh, and, And the only numbers that I ever get to see are in a range, you know, within a range of time, okay? How many listeners did I have in this period of time? How many listens did I get in this period of time? So, you know, we could be talking about 100 listeners. We could be talking about 35 listeners, Uh, you know, maybe one in each state. I don't know. Who knows? But I want to say to anyone and everyone who is listening into the show, thanks for listening in. Okay. Uh, You know, aside from enjoying doing this, uh, this podcast here, it's been kind of a kind of a blast to kind of watch the analytics in this thing, uh, go back and forth. And, um, you know, there's people that are you know, from my perspective, there's people that are actually participating in the world and actually listening to what I have to say, which is always a, a, it always blows my mind that anybody would listen to what I have to say, (laughs) okay, Uh, you know, who am I, right, but anyway, thanks for listening in, you know, folks, and uh, of course, big booyah to the latest addition to uh, the listeners in the world, Uh, this is a country in, in the United Kingdom of all places. Okay? I guess it shouldn't surprise me, seeing as how Ireland uh, you know, got onto the boat here. And like I said, as per usual, I want to talk about some history and some other interesting tidbits of information about you know, various countries and places that pop up on the analytic mechanism here. So without further ado, let's talk about Scotland, right? Big booyah for Scotland, folks. Uh, now, I'll tell you, my mother's side of the family claims some Scott heritage. Okay. Now I know almost nothing about that side of the family, except to say that I think it's from my mother's father's side of the family. Okay. Because I want to say that my mother's mother was Irish. All right. But when I think of Scotland, of course, you know, I think of a rugged, strong, very proud people uh, who also, incidentally, fought for their independence in history, uh, as you might know. Okay. Uh, I think the most famous portrayal of all of that was in the Mel Gibson. Uh, cinematic drama action film called Braveheart okay Uh, but I also tend to think of the (laughs) the funny things that I've seen uh, come out of Scotland uh, and my of course my favorite video clip uh, coming out of Scotland it's hilarious
3: hey what are you saying? why can
0: I not get a boyfriend?
3: because I'm not letting you get a boyfriend why not? because you're not getting one
0: Dad, I can get a boyfriend if I want get a
3: boyfriend. Daddy'll break his legs. No! Yes, I will. Dad, I... And guess what will happen after that? What? See your boyfriend's daddy. Mm-hmm. Daddy'll take him hostage and keep him in a cupboard. Dad, listen, I want
2: a boyfriend. I want-
3: you're not going to a boyfriend, you're going to be yeah. a nun. You're going to be a nun. You're going to
2: work for Jesus. No, no I'm
0: going to get a boyfriend. They're who you're going to, work for. No, no, you going to work for. They're who no, you're going to work for. End of story. Hey!
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Uh, this, the little Scottish girl wants a boyfriend, and she wants it now. Right? Daddy? Uh-uh. Not happening. <laughs> You've probably seen the video uh, out there. It's hilarious. Uh, but, uh, but anyway... Uh, I want to talk about Scotland and some of the interesting tidbits of information and history uh, that I found about uh, Scotland uh, when I started looking some things up. Uh, so uh, let's get right into it. Scotland is... I'm going to sound like Kamala Harris here. Scotland uh, is a country inside of the United Kingdom. All right? uh, covering the northern third of the island of Great Britain... Mainland Scotland has a 96-mile border with England to the southeast and is otherwise surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean to the north and the west, the North Sea to the northeast, and the Irish Sea to the south. The country also contains more than 790 islands, principally in the archipelagos of the Hebrides and the Northern Isles. Most of the population, including the capital of Edinburgh, is concentrated in the central belt. That's the plain between the Scottish Highlands and the Southern Uplands in the Scottish Lowlands. Scotland is divided into 32 administrative subdivisions or local authorities known as council areas. Glasgow City is the largest council area in terms of population, with Highland being the largest in terms of area. Limited self-governing power covering matters such as education, social services and roads and transportation is all devolved from Scottish government to each subdivision. Scotland is the second largest country in the United Kingdom and accounts for 8.3% of the population, uh, according to data in a 2012 study. The Kingdom of Scotland emerged as an independent sovereign state in the 9th century and continued to exist until 1707. By inheritance in 1603, James VI of Scotland became King of England and Ireland, thus forming a personal union of the three kingdoms. Scotland subsequently entered into a political union with the Kingdom of England on 1 May 1707 to create the new Kingdom of Great Britain. The union also created the Parliament of Great Britain, which succeeded both the Parliament of Scotland and the Parliament of England. In 1801, the Kingdom of Great Britain entered into a political union with the Kingdom of Ireland to create the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, this was, uh, let's see, and in, in 1922, the Irish Free State ceded from the United Kingdom, leading to the latter being officially renamed the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That was in 1927. A lot of history here. Within Scotland, the monarchy of the United Kingdom has continued to use a variety of styles, titles, and other royal symbols of statehood specific to the pre-Union Kingdom of Scotland. The legal system within Scotland has also remained a separate, uh, or remained separate from those of England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Scotland constitutes a distinct jurisdiction in both public and private law. The continued existence of legal, educational, religious, and other institutions distinct from those in the remainder of the UK have all contributed to the continuation of Scottish culture and national identity since the 1707 incorporating union with England. In 1999, a Scottish parliament was re-established in the form of a devolved unicameral legislature comprising 129 members, having authority over many areas of domestic policy. The head of the Scottish Government is the First Minister of Scotland, who is supported by the Deputy First Minister of Scotland. Scotland is represented by the United Kingdom Parliament, by 59 MPs. Scotland is also a member of the British-Irish Council, sending five members of the Scottish Parliament to the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly, as well as being part of the Joint Ministerial Committee, represented by the First Minister. The first written reference to Scotland was in 320 B.C. by Greek sailor uh, Pythias Pythias, who called the northern tip of Britain Orcus, the source of the name of the Orkney Islands. During the first millennium B.C., the society changed dramatically to a chiefdom model as consolidation of settlement led to the concentration of wealth and underground stores of surplus food. Interesting. The Roman conquest of Britain was never completed during the Roman Empire, and most of the modern Scotland was not brought under Roman political control. The first Roman incursion into Scotland occurred in 79 AD when Agricola invaded Scotland. He defeated a Caledonian army at the Battle of Mons Graupus in 83 AD. I hope I'm pronouncing that right because it's very strange. After the Roman victory... Uh, Roman forts were briefly set along the Gask Ridge, close to the highland line, but by three years after the battle, the Roman armies had withdrawn to the southern uplands. Remains of Roman forts established in the first century have been found as far north as uh, the Moray Firth. By the reign of the Roman Emperor Trajan, Roman control had lapsed to Britain, south of a line between the River Tyne and the Sloway Firth. Along this line, Trajan's successor, Hadrian, erected Hadrian's Wall, the famed wall there, in northern England, and the Limes Britannicus became the northern border of the Roman Empire. The Roman influence on the southern part of the country was considerable, and they introduced Christianity to Scotland in that year. In the 12th and 13th centuries, much of Scotland was under the control of a single ruler— Initially, Gaelic culture predominated, but immigrants from France, England, and Flanders... (laughs) ...Flanders... uh, ...steadily created a more diverse society, with the Gaelic language starting to be replaced by the Scots. Altogether, a modern nation-state emerged from this. At the end of this period, war against England started the growth of a Scottish national consciousness. David I and his successors centralized royal power and united mainland Scotland, capturing regions such as Moray, Galloway, and Caithness, although he did not succeed at extending his power over the Hebrides, which had been ruled by various Scottish clans following the death of Summerled in 1164. The system of feudalism was consolidated, with both Anglo-Norman incomers and the native Gaelic chieftains being granted land in exchange for serving the king. The complex relationship with Scotland's southern neighbor over this period is characterized by Scottish kings making successful and unsuccessful attempts to exploit English political turmoil, followed by the longest period of peace between Scotland and England in the medieval period from 1217 to 1296. In the 18th century, with trade tariffs, with England uh, having been abolished, trade blossomed during that time, especially with colonial America. The Clippers belonging to the Glasgow Tobacco Lords were the fastest ships on the route to Virginia. Until the American War of Independence in 1776, Glasgow was the world's premier tobacco port, dominating world trade. The Scottish Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution turned Scotland into an intellectual, commercial, and industrial powerhouse. So much so that Voltaire said, "...we look to Scotland for all our ideas of civilization." With the demise of Jacobitism and the advent of the Union, thousands of Scots, mainly lowlanders, took up numerous positions of power in politics, civil service, the army, and the navy. Uh, Also in trade, economics, colonial enterprises, and other areas across the nascent British Empire. Historian Neil Davidson notes... After 1746, there was an entirely new level of participation by Scots in political life, particularly outside Scotland. Davidson also states, far from being peripheral to the British economy, Scotland, or more precisely, the lowlands, lay at its core. In the Highlands, clan chiefs gradually started to think of themselves more as commercial landlords than leaders of their people. These social and economic changes included the first phase of the Highland clearances and ultimately the demise of clanship. In the 19th century, the Scottish Reform Act of 1832 increased the number of Scottish MPs and widened the franchise to include more of the middle classes. From the mid-century, there were increasing calls for home rule for Scotland, and the post of Secretary of State for Scotland was revived. Toward the end of the century, Prime Minister of Scottish descent included William Gladstone and the Earl of Rosebery. In the late 19th century, the growing importance of the working classes was marked by Care Hardy's success in the mid-Lennecashire uh, by-election in 1888, leading to the foundation of the Scottish Labour Party, which was absorbed into the Independent Labour Party in 1895, with Hardy as its first leader. Glasgow became one of the largest cities in the world, and was known as the second city of the empire after London. After 1860, the Clydeside shipyards specialized in steamships made of iron. After 1870, they were made of steel. Uh, And this rapidly replaced wooden sailing vessels of both merchant fleets and the battle fleets of the world. It became the world's preeminent shipbuilding center. The industrial developments, while they brought work and wealth, were so rapid that housing, town planning, and provision for public health couldn't keep pace with it. And for a time, living conditions in some of the towns and cities were notoriously bad, with overcrowding, high infant mortality, and growing rates of tuberculosis. While the Scottish Enlightenment is traditionally considered to have concluded toward the end of the 18th century, disproportionately large scottish contributions to british science and letters continued for another 50 years or more thanks to such figures as the physicist james clerk maxwell and lord kelvin and the engineers and inventors james watt and william murdoch whose work was critical to the technological developments of the industrial revolution throughout britain in literature the most successful figure in the mid-19th century was walter scott his first prose work, *Waverley*, in 1814, is often called the first historical novel. It launched a highly successful career that probably more than any other helped define and popularize Scottish cultural identity. In the late 19th century, a number of Scottish-born authors re- achieved international reputations, such as Robert Louis Stevenson, Arthur Conan Doyle, J.M. Barrie, and George MacDonald. Scotland also played a major part in the development of art and architecture. The Glasgow School, which developed in the late 19th century uh, and flourished in the early 20th century, produced a distinctive blend of influences, including the Celtic revival of the arts and crafts movement. This period saw a process of rehabilitation for Highland culture, in the 1820s, as part of the Romantic Revival, the Tartan and the Kilt were adopted by members of the social elite, not just in Scotland, but across Europe. It was prompted by the popularity of MacPherson's Ossian Cycle and then Walter Scott's Waverly novels. However, the highlands remained poor, the only part of mainland Britain to continue to experience recurrent famine, with a limited range of products exported out of the region negligible industrial production, but a continued population growth that tested the subsistence agriculture. These problems and the desire to improve agriculture and profits were the driving forces of the ongoing highland clearances in which many of the population of the highlands suffered eviction as lands were enclosed, principally so that they could be used for sheep farming. The first phase of the clearances followed patterns of agricultural change throughout Britain. The second phase was driven by overpopulation, the Highland Potato Famine, and the collapse of industries that had relied on the wartime economy of the Napoleonic Wars. The population of Scotland grew steadily in the 19th century, from 1,608,000 in the census of 1801 to 2,889,000 in 1851, and then 4,472,000 in 1901. Even with the development of industry, there were not enough good jobs. As a result, during the period from 1841 to 1931, about two million Scots had migrated to North America and Australia, and another 750,000 Scots relocated to England. Now, in the 20th century, Scotland played a major role in the British effort in the First World War. It especially provided manpower, ships, machinery, fish, and money. With a population of 4.8 million in 1911, Scotland sent over half a million men to the war, of whom over a quarter died in combat or from disease, and 150,000 were seriously wounded. Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig was Britain's commander on the Western Front at the time. The shipbuilding industry expanded by a third, and expected renewed prosperity. But instead, a serious depression hit the economy by 1922, and it didn't fully recover until 1939. During the Second World War, Scotland was targeted by Nazi Germany, largely due to its factories and its shipyards and coal mines. Cities such as Glasgow and Edinburgh were targeted by German bombers, as were smaller towns, mostly located in the central belt of the country. Perhaps the most significant air raid in Scotland was the Clydebank Blitz of March in 1941, which intended to destroy naval shipbuilding in that area. 528 people were killed, and 4,000 homes were totally destroyed. Perhaps Scotland's most unusual wartime episode occurred in 1941, when Rudolf Hess flew to Renfrewshire, possibly intending to broker a peace deal through the Duke of Hamilton. Before his departure from Germany, Hess had given his adjutant general, Karl-Heinz Pinch, a letter addressed to Hitler that detailed his intentions to open peace negotiations with the British. Pinch uh, delivered the letter to Hitler at the Berghof around noon on May 11th. Albert Speer later said that Hitler described Hess's departure as one of the worst personal blows of his life, as he considered it a personal betrayal. Hitler worried that his allies, Italy and Japan, would perceive Hess's act as an attempt by Hitler to secretly open peace negotiations with the British. After 1945, Scotland's economic situation worsened due to overseas competition, inefficient industry, and industrial disputes. Only in recent decades has the country enjoyed something of a cultural and economic renaissance. Economic factors contributing to this recovery included a resurgent financial services industry, electronic manufacturing, uh, and the North Sea oil and gas industry. The introduction in 1989 by Margaret Thatcher's government of the Community uh, Charge, widely known as the Poll Tax, one year before the rest of Great Britain, contributed to a growing movement for Scottish control over domestic affairs. Following a referendum on devolution proposals in 1997, the Scotland Act of 1998 was passed by the British Parliament, which established a devolved Scottish Parliament and Scottish government with the responsibility for most laws specific to Scotland. The Scottish Parliament was reconvened in Edinburgh on July 4, 1999. Hmm, interesting. The first to hold the office of First Minister of Scotland was Donald Dewar who served until his death in 2000. In the 21st century, the Scottish Parliament building at Holyrood opened in October of 2004 after lengthy construction delays and running over budget. The Scottish Parliament's form of proportional representation uh, with the additional member system uh, resulted in no one party having an overall majority for the first three Scottish Parliament elections. However, the pro-independence Scottish National Party led by Alex Salmond, achieved an overall majority in the 2000 election, winning 69 of the 129 seats available. The success of the SNP in achieving a majority in the Scottish Parliament paved the way for the September 2014 referendum on Scottish independence. The majority voted against the proposition, with 55% voting no to independence. More powers, particularly in relation to taxation, were devolved to the Scottish Parliament after the referendum, following cross-party talks in the Smith Commission. Now, that was the formation of Scotland from its uh, very early years uh, throughout uh, the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st century, which, interestingly, I've, you know, look, I find it interesting that in the 21st century they were talking about pro-independence in uh, the Scottish National Party talking about independence, uh, in the 21st century, folks. That's very interesting. Now, what's the weather like in Scotland? Well, I'm going to tell you. The climate of most of Scotland is temperate and oceanic and tends to be uh, very changeable, right? Uh, As it is, warmed by the Gulf Stream from the Atlantic, it has much milder winters, but cooler and wetter summers than areas on similar latitudes, such as Labrador or southern Scandinavia. All right. Temperatures are generally lower than in the rest of the UK, with the temperature of, what's that, uh, minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit, recorded at uh, Bremer in the Grampian Mountains on February 11th of 1895. This is the coldest ever recorded anywhere in the UK. Uh, Winter maxima average is, what, 43 degrees Fahrenheit in the lowlands, with summer uh, averaging at 64 degrees Fahrenheit. The highest temperature recorded was 32.9 degrees Celsius, which translates to 91.2 degrees Fahrenheit. And this was at Greycrook there at the Scottish borders on August 9th, 2003. Wow. 21st century firsts. The west of Scotland is usually warmer than the east, owing to the influence of Atlantic Ocean currents and the colder surface temperatures of the North Sea. Very interesting. Heavy snowfall is not common in the lowlands, but becomes more common with altitude, of course. Uh, Bremer has an average of 59 snow days per year, while many coastal areas average fewer than 10 days of lying snow per year. Although Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland, the largest city is Glasgow, which has just over 584,000 inhabitants. The Greater Glasgow uh, Conurbation, with a population of almost 1.2 million, is home to nearly a quarter of Scotland's population. Interesting. That's a lot of people. The Scottish Lowlands host 80% of the total population, where the central belt accounts for 3.5 million people. Uh, Interestingly enough, Scotland has three officially recognized languages, English, Scots, and Scottish Gaelic. Scottish Standard English, a variety of English as spoken in Scotland, is at one end of a bipolar linguistic continuum with broad Scots at the other. Scottish Standard English may have been influenced to varying degrees by the Scots themselves. The 2011 census indicated that 63% of the population had no skills in Scots. Others speak Highland English, and Gaelic is mostly spoken in the Western Isles, where a large proportion of people still speak it. However, nationally, its use is confined to just 1% of the population. The number of Gaelic speakers in Scotland dropped from 250,000 in 1881 to 60,000 in 2008. Wow. Oh, here's something interesting I didn't know. Uh, It says here that there are more people with Scottish ancestry living abroad than the total population of Scotland. Uh, In 2000, uh, 9.2 million Americans self-reported some degree of Scottish descent. Ulster's Protestant population is mainly of lowland Scottish descent, and it's estimated that there are more than 27 million descendants of the Scots-Irish migration now living in the U.S. Interesting. Interesting. In Canada, the Scottish-Canadian community accounts for 4.7 million people and about 20% of the original European settler population of New Zealand came from Scotland. Wow. Scotland has a limited self-government with the United Kingdom as well as representation in the British Parliament. Executive and legislative powers respectively have been devolved to the Scottish government and the Scottish Parliament at Holyrood in Edinburgh since 1999. We went through that a little bit earlier. The British Parliament retains control over reserved matters specified in the Scotland Act of 1998, including taxes, social security, uh, defense, international relations, and broadcasting. Interesting. The Scottish Parliament has legislative authority for all other areas relating to Scotland. It initially had only a limited power to vary income tax, but powers over taxation and Social Security were significantly expanded by the Scotland Acts of 2012 and 2016. Uh, The 2016 Act gave the Scottish government powers to manage the affairs of the Crown Estate in Scotland, which led to the creation of the Crown Estate Scotland. Now, as far as the economy goes, Scotland has a Western-style open, mixed economy, closely linked with the rest of the UK and the wider world. Traditionally, the Scottish economy was dominated by heavy industry, underpinned by shipbuilding in Glasgow, coal mining and the steel industries. Petroleum-related industries associated with the extraction of the North Sea oils have been also important employers, uh, you know, from the 1970s, especially in the northeast of Scotland. Deindustrialization during the 1970s and 1980s saw a shift from a manufacturing focus towards a more service-oriented economy. Scotland's gross domestic product, including oil and gas produced in Scottish waters, was estimated at 150 billion pounds for the calendar year of 2012. In 2014, Scotland's per capita GDP was one of the highest in the EU, As of April 2019, the Scottish unemployment rate was 3.3%, below the UK's overall rate of 3.8%, and the Scottish employment rate was 75.9%. This may come as a surprise. Uh, Whiskey is one of Scotland's more known goods of economic activity. Exports increased by 87% uh, in the decade leading to 2012 and were valued at uh, $4.3 billion in 2013, which was 85% of Scotland's food and drink exports. Wow. Bet you didn't know that. Or did you? Whiskey. You gotta love it. There's a a whiskey, uh, a Scott whiskey, uh, that I drink, and it's the only Scotch that I drink. Okay, It's called Lagavulin, and uh, it is the smokiest, smoothest, uh, earthy scotch that I have ever tasted in my life. Um, it's like drinking smoke, right? Celtic smoke. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. If you ever have a chance to try Lagavulin, try it. Uh, there's not that many people that uh, th- th- that can relate to it, but uh, we are a strong, proud few. And uh, it's just it's just fantastic, folks. It's it's an excellent scotch, and uh, you know, just an aside, I have my uncle David to thank for that. Okay, uh, f- for introducing me to uh, Lagavulin and the greatness that is scotch in Lagavulin. All right, uh, my uncle happens to be the minister of information uh, for many things, but he is definitely. Uh, my go-to guy for everything and all things bourbon and whiskey. So, booyah to Uncle David for introducing me to the scotch. If you ever get a chance to try it, folks, I'm telling you right now, uh, this is the commercial, okay, right here. Try Lagavulin. There's only a a few proud people that will drink that stuff, and uh, I'm telling you, it is Scotland in a bottle. Now, uh we've got military information here. They have a long history of, of uh military uh pride in Scotland. Uh music is a big deal. It says here that the Scottish music is a significant aspect of the nation's culture with both traditional and modern influences. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You gotta know that. Uh a famous st- <laughs> It says here, a famous traditional Scottish instrument is the Great Highland Bagpipe, a wind instrument consisting of three drones and a melody pipe called the Chanter, which are fed continuously by a reservoir of air in the bag. Bagpipe bands featuring bagpipes in various types of drums and showcasing Scottish music styles while creating new ones have spread uh, exponentially throughout the world. Yeah, you got that right. I mean, who doesn't like the bagpipes? You know? Who doesn't I mean, come on, man. Right? Uh there's been there's been a few famous bands uh coming out of Scotland. You know, Annie Lennox, which I didn't know, is out of Scotland. Amy McDonald. Um, let's see, who else? <laughs> Other people that I haven't heard of before. Uh Susan Boyle is out of uh is out of Scotland, I guess. How interesting. Hmm. The Bay City Rollers? What? In the ass? Seriously? I can't believe I'm reading this. Wow. Uh, Shirley Manson is a Scottish musician. Uh, yeah. A lot of these people have achieved a considerable commercial success in, uh, in the international music market. Okay? Uh, Awesome. Awesome. Good music. Always good music coming out of Scotland. As one of the Celtic nations, Scotland and Scott Culture are represented at uh, what's called inter-Celtic events at home uh, in Scotland and all over the world. Scotland hosts several music festivals, including Celtic Connections, uh, which is held in Glasgow, uh, and the Hebridean Celtic Festival, which is in Stornoway, I guess it's called. Uh, festivals celebrating Celtic culture, such as Festival uh, Inter-Celtique, uh, De Laurent in Brittany, uh, the Pan-Celtic Festival in Ireland, and the National Celtic Festival in uh, Australia. Um, these feature elements of Scottish culture, such as language, music, and dance. It's a good time. It's a good time for everybody, right? Uh, there's some stuff here about about Scottish food. Um, not going to get too much into that. Uh, of course, as you would know, sports are a big deal, right? Rugby, uh, golf. I mean, you, you can't talk about Scott sports without talking about golf. Okay. Uh, here's another thing that I found interesting. Scotland's primary sources for energy are provided through renewable energy, and uh, and 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 their energy is at like. Uh, Let's see, one gentleman, Luke here. Blah blah blah. Yeah, sixty-one point eight percent of their energy is provided through renewables. Uh, they also use uh, twenty-five and a half or so uh, percent uh, in nuclear energy, and of course fossil fuel generation, which is at ten point nine percent. Huh. Ninety-eight point six percent of all electricity. That was used in Scotland was from renewable sources. Interesting. The Scottish government uh, has a target to have the equivalent of 50% of the energy for Scotland's heat, transport, and electricity consumption to be supplied from renewable sources by 2030. Interesting. Maybe they'll get there. And those are the things that I found out about Scotland that I found very interesting. Okay. Uh, Of course, there's a whole lot more that I'm not even scratching the surface on, right? I'm not even scratching the surface on the history uh, and other current information about Scotland with regard to uh, their tourism industry and the like, you know? But, uh, but there you have it, folks, right? Uh, I may have told you this before, but Ireland is uh, the one place that I want to visit the most, but I'm going to tell you, Scotland is definitely right next to that in places that I want to visit. And, uh, you know, perhaps one day I will. So, once again, booyah to Scotland. I don't know what town you're in or how many of you there are or whether or not, uh, you know, uh, the, the Scott girl got a boyfriend uh, or, or maybe she's working for Jesus. I don't know. But high or low, welcome to the show, Scotland. As with all the Celtic nations, you have a history that is proud and a future that is guaranteed. Wow, would you look at the time, folks? We're already about an hour into this episode, and uh, we've still got a lot to get to, okay? So, uh, as per usual, about this time, I'm gonna take a break and uh, take care of business and uh, queue up the next segment. So, we're gonna be talking about Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion into Ukraine, and what that means, or at least what it means to me and what's been going on here lately. Um, things have been changing rapidly since the 24th of February so uh, don't go away Uh, I'll be right back folks get into the office at the beginning of the week does the workspace inspire you to get to work right away does your office and workspace look clean and more importantly does it feel clean or does it feel like pizza feet and fingerprints all over the place how about you contractors and homeowners out there are you near the end of your projects and need to get all this renovation and restoration mess cleaned up and the space looking like new again well, you better get it in gear, folks. I mean, let's face it, construction and renovation projects can be cleanup nightmares. That's why you need Parker's Professional Cleaning Services. The professional staff at Parker's knows just how important a clean work environment is, and they recognize that any post-construction and renovation cleaning endeavor is paramount to moving on to your next project. In other words, the professional cleaning is what's gonna turn a renovated space into a home and the workspace into a clean and refreshed area that contributes to office productivity. Now look, anybody can come in here with a broom and a mop and pretend to know what they're doing, right? But I'm telling you, this professional cleaning stuff, it ain't just about warm bodies and brooms, folks, okay? The staff at Parker's Professional Cleaning Services reviews the space, develops a strategy to perform the job, And waste no time in getting at removing dirt, sanitizing, vacuuming, mopping, you know, cleaning areas that rarely receive the attention that they require. Parker's Professional Cleaning Services has been in the biz since 2013, folks, and they've seen it all and have cleaned it all, right? Tristan Parker knows time is money. And Parker's Professional Cleaning Staff gets the job done right the first time all the time. So if you're looking for a top-tier professional cleaning service in Gaston County, North Carolina and the surrounding areas, whether it's for a weekly office cleanup or for a post-renovation project, call Tristan Parker of Parker Professional Cleaning Services at 704-883-5414. Now, you can find Parker's on The Book of Face, or you can send her an email at trissy06 at gmail.com. That's T R I ssy06 at gmail.com but I'll tell you if you're like me you'd rather call 704-883-5414 give her a call you're going to be glad you did because when you get Parker's Professional Cleaning Services on the job it means you can move on to the next project and it means that you care about your work environment and your office staff Parker's Professional Cleaning Services nobody Does it better? Hey folks, it's me again. I just want to get in a few shout outs to my friends over at Checkmate with Bishop and Knight. When you need a break from all the political discussions that we have, all the seriousness, uh, and the righteous opinions of yours truly, uh, tune in to Checkmate with Bishop and Knight. What started out as two idiots making a podcast has rapidly turned into entertainment gold with the 21 Question episodes, with the more regular than the occasional guest. Jr. You got your 21 Questions episodes, the Bring It On episodes, uh, which cover a wide range of topics concerning our culture. And then, if you if you're into big boy ballerina, okay, also known as professional wrestling, if that's your thing then you got to tune in to the best podcast covering the sport. Listen to Swanton Pod, the wrestling podcast for smart marks. Hosted by Beef McGinnis, Roadhouse, and Matt Knight of the Checkmate with Bishop and Knight fame. Check them out at facebook.com forward slash swantonpod. These podcasts can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, and of course Anchor FM. Uh, where you can also leave messages and offer your opinions of the show. You can suggest discussion topics, and if you're so inclined, you can leave your email address. Who knows? You may find yourself being a guest on the show. It's not often, folks, but even I need a break from the usual, and when I do, I tune into any one of these shows, and I'm guaranteed a entertainment stroll into the unknown. So listen in, enjoy the ride, booyah. And I'm back, and you're back. It's good to be back. So I'm thinking, if your name is Beef McGinnis, (laughs) uh, I just feel like whatever it is you have to say about wrestling, uh, it's got to be true, right? (laughs) Beef McGinnis. You're listening to another awe-inspiring episode brought to you by your less-than-humble host. You know who of the you know who fame. The world's on fire, folks. And while there are serious issues and happenings in the world, no matter who's president at any given time, you got to admit what's happening today in Ukraine, it's definitely a world changer. Okay? Or at least it has the potential of being a world changing event. I, I think it is changing the world. And I think it's changing the United States. Uh, and not in a good way. So welcome back, folks. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine. Let's get it on. So here we are, folks. W- what is it now? Almost a full month into the war in Ukraine. Uh, and that's what it is, folks. It's a war. And what we seem to be avoiding here uh, these days is the realization or recognition that we are at war. We're at war. It's pure and simple. We were at war the minute Putin crossed the line and threatened every nation-state that interfered in his brutal takeover of the sovereign Ukraine people with a nuclear option. Of course, he didn't say nukes, which is a point that I recognize, and uh, all my naysayers keep pointing it out to me. But that's precisely what he meant. But then again, some of these same people are the ones who still think we're not in a war with Russia and that by virtue of any direct action to save Ukraine, we're risking actual war in World War III with another nuclear power, which is precisely what Putin counted on. And he was right, right? His threats of consequences has the U.S. paralyzed with fear. Has the world paralyzed with fear? And Putin has shown the world that this administration nato to a, to a degree and the u.s is weak toothless entities led by a weak toothless person oh sure we're sending arms into ukraine biden's been slow walking that stuff and in reality it was europe that initiated action to supply ukraine with arms right i mean biden you know relented and went along with what europe was already starting to do okay I mean, Biden's talking tough on Russia and saying things like, we need to do everything to help Ukraine and punish Putin. Well, if you've been paying attention, folks, you really have to ask, are we doing everything? Are we punishing Putin? Because Putin keeps advancing in Ukraine, and Ukrainian people keep dying. And the entire time, no matter what we do or what we say, Putin continues to redefine the war and continues to define what constitutes interference by the U.S. and the West and NATO, uh, and he continues to threaten us with severe consequences, all right, alluding to a possible worldwide conflict of nuclear proportions. So in in that sense, from my perspective, Putin declared war on the U.S. and NATO. Now, we, 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 we just don't want to admit it, right? And we've shrunk from doing the right thing because of our fear of angering Putin. So we send arms, uh, you know, stingers, javelins. But from my point of view, and if we kind of project a little bit, whenever Ukrainian is either a starved servant or a dead freedom fighter, okay, there'll be piles of arms over there, and we'll tell ourselves that we did the best we could, but we averted World War, okay? A lot of people think World War Three is a certainty if we take on Putin. Now, almost a month in, and Putin and the Russian army continue to close in on Kiev and President Zelensky, murdering thousands and displacing millions of Ukrainians every mile he advances. He continues to threaten the West, NATO, and the U.S., and other countries, most recently Finland and Sweden, for crying out loud. So we upped the shipment of arms into the western end of Ukraine through Poland or through other countries, and, uh, you know, Poland, to its eternal credit, has been accepting millions of Ukrainians into its country, and most recently attempted to give Ukraine MiG-29s. I mean, Poland's really been a bulldog in this thing. But once again, the U.S. and this administration have shown their true colors, you know, Citing problematic and impossible logistical issues as well as political ones, the plan to get Ukraine jets is untenable, as proclaimed by the Pentagon, or what I like to call the Puzzle Palace. Now, granted, these are the same dumbasses that gave us the Afghanistan withdrawal, okay? The transfer of jets is not untenable, folks. It's not impossible, and it's not an escalation. Okay, for crying out loud, we're sending stingers and javelins over there. Thousands of rounds of ammunition, you know, times 10. Okay, it's not impossible to get them jets. D-Day, storming the beach in the face of withering machine gun fire by the Nazis. You know, American forces advancing on a fascist regime and taking France. That was supposed to be impossible. And yet we did it. Zelensky continues to plead his case for intervention beyond stingers and javelins. And Putin continues to lie about the reasons for his invasion. He continues to lie about possible ceasefires, using that as a cover, okay? Uh, And he continues to crush resistance and choke the people out. We take a few yachts from a few Russian oligarchs and we say sanctions are working. We continue to talk tough against Russia and Putin, and yet we're still buying his damn oil. We're still importing it, folks. And the lies about that whole thing continued to spew from Saki's mouth in this administration. So after finally caving in, Biden said, no more Russian imports. Okay, and as far as I know, we're still importing it, by the way. But then he turns right around and starts begging other tyrants for oil. Iran, uh, OPEC, Venezuela. In fact, uh, you know, as far as as Iran goes, you know, in this whole nightmare of a situation that we're in, he's allowing Russia to represent us in the JCPOA talks as we beg Iran for oil, okay? I mean, you got to be kidding me, folks. And the American people are saying the same thing. The American people are asking why we're so dependent on on russian or foreign oil from dictators they see through the bullshit that gen gen saki pushes when she says that the us is, is is producing more oil today than we were even during trump we're exporting more now than we were back then well if that's the case then why are we buying oil from russia in the first place why are we looking for it you know from iran or venezuela why aren't we independent of those oil-producing tyrants. Why are we worried about the Russian tagging barrels of oil for 300 bucks a barrel, okay? and I can see Germany and Europe being worried about it, you know, since they went full retard Green New Deal in their own countries, and, you know, they've had to depend on Russia to supply energy and fuel for their survival. But why are we wigging out? You know why? Because we're, we're, we're on the road to going full retard, too. You know what I mean? full retard new green deal uh, or green new deal and now we're paying the price for extreme ideological stances on climate change and energy production and for our complete lack of leadership in the white house with regard to not only energy independence but with regard to peace through strength with biden in the white house as it is now we invite war through weakness But let me give you some historical context here, not only in the current situation, but in the historical context of Russia and its relationship with the United States, uh, you know, and with the world and with NATO and how it's led to this moment in time, because there's a lot of talking heads out there that would have you believe that Russia is simply reacting to NATO expansion and America's influence in the world and that all we had to do was acquiesce to Putin's demands that we agree to never allow NATO membership for Ukraine, you know, it, there was a couple of jack wagons, and they've been on here and there on Fox News. Uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis, and uh, this other guy McGregor. I can't remember what his what his deal was, but anyway, you know, it, here from the beginning, okay, and and they, you know, here recently they've started to kind of change their tune a little bit. Okay, but in the beginning, these jackwagons were out there talking about how it's, you know, our fault, you know, that this war was going on. Because it was always about Putin's resistance to NATO expansion toward his borders, or on his borders. That we should have taken NATO membership for Ukraine off the table. We should have just said it outright. No, they're not going to be part of NATO. Okay? Danny Davis was a jackwagon, all right? He was one of those ones that were saying that... um You know, people don't understand the dramatic difference between Ukraine forces and Russian forces. Well, here we are now. Here we are today. Ukraine has done an admirable job of resisting the Russian army. Guy was a jack wagon. McGregor said it was always about NATO on Putin's border as well, okay? Uh, He didn't want NATO on his borders, and that's why he was doing all of this. He didn't have a choice, okay? And all we had to do would say that Ukraine wasn't going to be a part of NATO and Putin wouldn't have smashed Ukraine up, okay? We could have avoided it. My comment at the time was, you know, when Putin takes Ukraine, Putin's going to be looking smack into NATO's face. There's going to be a big-ass NATO middle finger looking at Russia's Ukraine. So is he really trying to stem so-called NATO expansion? Is he really going to stop with Ukraine? No, I don't think so. You got Poland, you got Hungary, you got uh, Bulgaria down there. You've got NATO nations, okay, NATO countries that'll be on Ukraine's border once Russia takes Ukraine. So what the hell are we talking about? Ukraine was never a threat, and quite honestly, nobody was making any moves to put Ukraine into NATO. So what are we talking about here? Well, let's get into some history about... What Russia and Putin is all about, okay? Let's dig in. Now, if you listen to this, you'll notice uh, we're getting from the birth of communism as we know it today, and uh, you may find that some of these terms and some of these instances are a little familiar here. So, without further ado, in the Russian Revolution of 1917, revolutionary Bolsheviks overthrew the Russian Tsar, and four socialist republics were established. In 1922, Russia proper joined its far-flung republics to form the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The first leader of this Soviet state was the Marxist revolutionary, Vladimir Lenin. The Soviet Union was supposed to be a society of true democracy, but in many ways, it was no less repressive than the Tsarist autocracy that preceded it. It was ruled by a single party, the Communist Party, that demanded the allegiance of every Russian citizen, after 1924, when the dictator Joseph Stalin came to power, the state exercised totalitarian control over the economy, administering all industrial activity and establishing collective farms. It also controlled every aspect of political and social life. People who argued against Stalin's policies were arrested and sent to labor camps known as gulags, or they were simply executed. The constitution adopted in 1924, established a federal system of government based on a succession of Soviets set up in villages, factories, and cities in larger regions. This pyramid of Soviets in each constituent republic culminated in the All-Union Congress of Soviets. But while it appeared that the Congress exercised sovereign power, this body was actually governed by the Communist Party, which in turn was controlled by the Politburo from Moscow. The period from the consolidation of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 until 1921 is known as the period of war communism. Banks, railroads, and shipping were nationalized, and the money economy was restricted. Strong opposition soon developed, though. The peasants wanted cash payments for their products and resented having to surrender their surplus grain to the government as part of its civil war policies. Confronted with peasant opposition, Lenin began a strategic retreat from war communism known as the New Economic Policy, or the NEP. The peasants were freed from wholesale levies of grain and allowed to sell their surplus produce in the open market. Commerce was stimulated by permitting private retail trading. The state continued to be responsible for banking, transportation, heavy industry, and public utilities. In other words, let the people have their little markets. We're going to control the entire country. While the Russian economy was being transformed, the social life of the people underwent equally drastic changes. From the beginning of the revolution, the government attempted to weaken patriarchal domination of the family. Divorce no longer required court procedure, and to make women completely free of the responsibilities of childbearing, abortion was made legal as early as 1920. The emancipation of the women increased the labor market. Girls were encouraged to secure an education and pursue a career in the factory or the office. Communal nurseries were set up for the care of small children, and efforts were made to shift the center of the people's social life from the home to educational and recreational groups, otherwise known as these Soviet clubs. Okay? The regime abandoned the czarist policy of discriminating against national minorities in favor of a policy of incorporating the more than 200 minority groups in, into Soviet life. Another feature of the regime was the extension of medical services. Campaigns were carried out against typhus, cholera, and malaria. The number of doctors was increased as rapidly as facilities and training could permit. And infant mortality rates rapidly decreased while life expectancy rapidly increased. The government also promoted atheism and materialism, which formed the basis of Marxist theory. It opposed organized religion, especially in order to break the power of the Russian Orthodox Church, a former pillar of the old czarist regime and a major barrier to social change. Many religious leaders were sent to internal exile camps. Members of the party were forbidden to attend religious services. The education system was separated from the church Religious teaching was prohibited except in the home, and atheist instruction was stressed in the schools. Although the left opposition among the communists criticized the rich peasants, or kulaks, who benefited benefited from the NEP, the program proved highly beneficial and the economy was revived. The NEP would later come under increasing opposition from within the party following Lenin's death in early 1924. The years from 1929 to 1939 comprised a tumultuous decade in Russian history, a period of massive industrialization, internal struggles. At this time, Joseph Stalin established near-total control over Russian society, welding unrestrained power unknown to even the most ambitious of czars. Following Lenin's death, Stalin wrestled for control of the Soviet Union with rival factions in the Politburo, like Leon Trotsky's faction. By 1928, with the Trotskyites either exiled or rendered powerless, Stalin was ready to put a radical program of industrialization into action. In 1928, Stalin proposed the first five-year plan and abolished the NAP. The first five-year plan was the first of a number of plans aimed at swift accumulation of capital resources through the buildup of heavy industry, the collectivization of agriculture, and the restricted manufacture of consumer goods. With the implementation of the plan, for the first time in history, a government controlled all economic activity. While in the capitalist countries, factories and mines were idle or running on reduced schedules during the Great Depression and millions were unemployed, the Soviet people worked many hours a day, six days a week, in a thorough, ongoing attempt to revolutionize Russia's economic structure. As part of the plan, the government took control of agriculture through the state and collective farms. By a decree in February of 1930, about one million kulaks were forced off their land. Many peasants strongly opposed regimentation by the state, often slaughtering their herds when faced with the loss of their land. In some sections, they revolted, and countless peasants, deemed kulaks by the authorities, uh, were executed. A serious famine broke out, and several million peasants died of starvation— The deteriorating conditions in the countryside drove millions of desperate peasants to the rapidly growing cities, vastly increasing Russia's urban population in the space of just a few years. While the five-year plans were forging ahead, Stalin was establishing his personal power. The secret police gathered thousands of Soviet citizens to face execution. Of the six original members of the 1920 Politburo who survived Lenin, all were purged by Stalin. Old Bolsheviks, who had been loyal comrades of Lenin, high officers in the Red Army, and directors of industry, were liquidated in the Great Purge. Stalin's repressions led to the creation of a vast system of internal exile, of considerably greater dimensions than those set up even by the Tsars. Draconian penalties were introduced, and many citizens were prosecuted for fictitious crimes of sabotage and espionage. The labor provided by convicts working in the labor camps of the gulag system became a very important component of the industrialization effort, especially in Siberia. Around 5% of the population passed through this gulag system. So basically what Stalin has done here is he's basically taking the system of the czars and just skyrocketing to the extreme with it. He thinks himself a czar. Collaboration among the allies had won World War II and was supposed to serve as the basis for post-war reconstruction and security. However, the conflict between Soviet and U.S. national interests, known as the Cold War, came to dominate the international stage in the post-war period, assuming the public guise as a clash of ideologies. The Cold War emerged out of a conflict between Stalin and U.S. President Harry Truman over the future of Eastern Europe during the Potsdam Conference in the summer of 1945. Russia had suffered three devastating Western onslaughts in the previous 150 years during the Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, and the Second World War, and Stalin's goal was to establish a buffer zone of states between Germany and the Soviet Union. Truman claimed that Stalin had betrayed the Yalta Agreement. With Eastern Europe under the Red Army occupation, Stalin was also biding his time as his own atomic bomb project was steadily and secretly progressing. In April 1949, the United States sponsored the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, a mutual defense pact in which most Western nations pledged to treat an armed attack against one nation as an assault on all. Now, you'll, you'll recognize that as the Article 5 uh, clause. The Soviet Union established an eastern counterpart to NATO in 1955 and dub, dubbed it the Warsaw Pact. The division of Europe into Western and Soviet blocs later took on a more global character, especially after 1949 when the U.S. nuclear monopoly ended with the testing of a Soviet bomb and the communist takeover in China. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin was born on October 7, 1952, in Leningrad, the Russian-Soviet Union, now known as St. Petersburg. He was the youngest of three children of Vladimir Spiridonovich Putin and Maria Ivanovna Putina. His grandfather, Spiridon Putin, was a personal cook to Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin. Putin's birth was preceded by the deaths of his two brothers, Victor and Albert, born in the mid-1930s. Albert died in infancy and Viktor died of diphtheria during the Siege of Leningrad by Nazi Germany's forces in World War II. Putin's mother was a factory worker, and his father was a conscript in the Soviet Navy, serving in the submarine fleet in the early 1930s. Early in World War II, his father served in the destruction battalion of the NKVD. Later, he was transferred to the regular army and was severely wounded in 1942. Putin's maternal grandmother was killed by the German occupiers of Tver region in 1941, and his maternal uncles disappeared on the Eastern Front during World War II. On September 1, 1960, Putin started at School number 193 at Baskov Lane near his home. He was one of a few in the class of approximately 45 pupils who were not yet members of the Young Pioneer Organization. At age 12, he began to practice sambo and judo, In his free time, he enjoyed reading the works of Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and Lenin. Putin studied German at St. Petersburg High School and speaks German as a second language today. Putin studied law at the Leningrad State University, named after Andrei Zhdanov. It's now known as St. Petersburg State University. He studied law at Leningrad State University in 1970 and graduated in 1975. His thesis was on the most favored nation trading principle in international law. While there, he was required to join the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and remained a member until it ceased to exist when it was outlawed in August 1991. After Stalin's death in 1953, Soviet leaders denounced his brutal policies but maintained the Communist Party's power. They focused in particular on the Cold War with Western powers, engaging in a costly and destructive arms race with the United States while exercising military force to suppress anti-communism and extend its powers in Eastern Europe. In the power struggle that erupted after Stalin's death in 1953, his closest followers lost out. Nikita Khrushchev solidified his position in a speech before the 20th Congress of the Communist Party in 1956, detailing Stalin's atrocities and attacking him for promoting a personality cult. As details of his speech became public, Khrushchev accelerated a wide range of reforms. Downplaying Stalin's emphasis on heavy industry, he increased the supply of consumer goods and housing and stimulated agricultural production. The new policies improved the standard of living— although shortages of appliances, clothing, and other consumer durables would increase in later years. The judicial system, albeit still under the complete control of the Communist Party, replaced police terror, and intellectuals had more freedom than they had before. In 1964, Khrushchev was ousted by the Communist Party's Central Committee, which charged him with a host of errors that included Soviet setbacks, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis and the deepening Sino-Soviet Split. After a brief period of collective leadership, a veteran bureaucrat, Leonid Brezhnev, took Khrushchev's place. Now, if you remember, the Cuban Missile Crisis was basically, the down and dirty of it is this. The communists were looking to expand their influence and control in the world. So they were fixing to, to send missiles, okay, intercontinental ballistic missiles, into Cuba, Okay. Of course, we couldn't have that uh, right there, just south of Florida. So John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time, basically stood up to Khrushchev, and a war of wills, if you will, uh, played out. Kennedy had brought our nuclear readiness status up to DEFCON 2, the highest readiness being DEFCON 1. In the end, Khrushchev blinked, and we avoided World War three. Despite Khrushchev's tinkering with the economic planning, the economic system remained dependent on central plans, drawn up with no reference to market mechanisms. As a developed industrial country, the Soviet Union by the 1970s found it increasingly difficult to maintain the high rates of growth in the industrial sector that it had enjoyed in earlier years. Increasingly large investment and labor inputs were required for growth, but these inputs were becoming more difficult to obtain, partly because of the new emphasis on production of consumer goods. Although the goals of the five-year plans of the 1970s had been scaled down from, from previous plans, the targets remained largely unmet. Agricultural development continued to lag during the Brezhnev years. Although certain appliances and other goods became more accessible during the 60s and 70s, improvements in housing and food supply were not sufficient. The growing culture of consumerism and a shortage of consumer goods inherent in a non-market pricing system encouraged pilferage of government property and the growth of the black market. But in contrast to the revolutionary spirit that accompanied the birth of the Soviet Union, The prevailing mood of the Soviet leadership at the time of Brezhnev's death in 1982 was one of aversion to change. The foremost objectives of the Soviet foreign policy were the maintenance and enhancement of national security and the maintenance of hegemony over Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union maintained its dominance over the Warsaw Pact by crushing the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, suppressing the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and supporting the suppression of the Solidarity Movement in Poland in the early 1980s. As the Soviet Union continued to maintain tight control over its sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, the Cold War gave way to detente and a more complicated pattern of international relations in which the world was no longer clearly split into two clearly opposed blocks, in the 1970s. Less powerful countries had more room to assert their independence, and the two superpowers were partially able to recognize their common interest in trying to check the further spread and proliferation of nuclear weapons in treaties such as SALT-1, SALT-2, and the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. U.S.-Soviet relations deteriorated following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 and the 1980 election of Ronald Reagan, who was a staunch anti-communist, but improved as the Soviet bloc started to unravel in the late 1980s, beginning with the destruction of the Berlin Wall in Germany. In March 1985, a longtime Communist Party politician named Mikhail Gorbachev assumed the leadership of the USSR. He inherited a stagnant economy and a political structure that made reform all but impossible. Gorbachev introduced two sets of policies that he'd hoped would help the USSR become a more prosperous and productive nation. The first of these was known as glasnost, or political openness. Glasnost eliminated traces of Stalinist repression, like the banning of books and the omnipresent secret police, and gave new freedoms to Soviet citizens. Political prisoners were released. Newspapers could print criticisms of the government. And for the first time, parties other than the Communist Party could participate in elections. The second set of reforms was known as perestroika, or economic restructuring. The best way to revive the Soviet economy, Gorbachev thought, was to loosen the government's grip on it. He believed that private initiative would lead to innovation, so individuals and cooperatives were allowed to own businesses for the first time since the 1920s. Workers were given the right to strike for better wages and conditions. Gorbachev also encouraged foreign investment in Soviet enterprises. However, these reforms were slow to bear fruit. Perestroika had torpedoed the command economy that had kept the Soviet state afloat, but the market economy took time to mature. Now, in his farewell address, Gorbachev summed up the problem as, uh, as this in a nutshell. He's quoted as saying, the old system collapsed before the new one had time to begin working. Rationing shortages and endless queuing for scarce goods seemed to be the only results of Gorbachev's policies. As a result, people grew more and more frustrated with his government. Gorbachev believed that a better Soviet economy depended on better relationships with the rest of the world, especially the United States. Even as President Ronald Reagan called the USSR the evil empire and launched a massive military buildup, Gorbachev vowed to bow out of the arms race. He announced that he would withdraw Soviet troops from Afghanistan, where they'd been fighting a war since 1979. He reduced the Soviet military presence in the Warsaw Pact nations of Eastern Europe. This policy of non-intervention had important consequences for the Soviet Union, but first... It caused the Eastern European alliances to, as Gorbachev put it, crumble like a dry saltine cracker in just a few months. The first revolution of 1989 took place in Poland, where non-communist trade unionists in the Solidarity Movement bargained with the communist government for freer elections, in which they enjoyed great success. This, in turn, sparked peaceful revolutions across Eastern Europe. The Berlin Wall fell in November, In that same month, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia overthrew that country's communist government. In December, however, violence reigned. A firing squad executed Romania's communist dictator and his wife. You see, folks, people were starting to rebel against the communist regime. This is what they wanted. And from my perspective, uh, this is what's always going to happen. People yearn to be free. People yearn to be free, so there will always be, when the opportunity exists, a movement to rebel against communist regimes, authoritarian regimes, and Europe is no different than America in this regard. Now, this atmosphere of possibility soon enveloped the Soviet Union itself. Frustration with the bad economy, combined with Gorbachev's hands-off approach to Soviet satellites, inspired independence movements in the republics of the USSR fringes. One by one, the Baltic states, which is Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, declared their independence from Moscow. On August 18, 1991, concerned members of the Communist Party in the military and government placed Gorbachev under house arrest. The official reason given for his imprisonment was his inability for health reasons to lead as president, though the public knew better. Leaders of the coup d'etat declared a state of emergency. The military moved on Moscow, but their tanks were met with human chains and citizens building barricades to protect Russian parliament. Boris Yeltsin, then the chair of the parliament, stood on top of one of those tanks to rally the surrounding crowds. The coup d'etat failed three days later. On December 8th, a newly free Gorbachev traveled to Minsk, where he met with the leaders of the Republic of Belarus and Ukraine, signing an agreement that broke the two countries away from the USSR to create the Commonwealth of Independent States. The agreement read, in part, the Soviet Union as a subject of international and geopolitical reality no longer exists. Just weeks later, Belarus and Ukraine were followed by eight of the nine remaining republics who declared their independence from the USSR after a meeting in Alma-Ata, in today's Kazakhstan. Okay? Uh, Georgia joined two years later. Back in Moscow, Gorbachev's star was falling, while another politician was rising. Boris Yeltsin, the man who had stood atop that tank before parliament, now had control of both parliament and the KGB. Gorbachev's resignation as president was inevitable, and on Christmas Day 1991, he gave up his office, saying that we are now living in a new world. An end has been put to the Cold War and to the arms race, as well as to the mad militarization of the country, which has crippled our economy, public attitudes, and morals. The mighty Soviet Union had fallen. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia lost the superpower status that it had won in the Second World War. So throughout the history of communism, we see that there's a natural, steady progression to brutal, totalitarian control of not only the industries that could provide economic stability and prosperity for the people, and thus the country as a whole, but a brutal control of the people, as those in the communist regime continues the czarist monarchical control of the country— Instead of one ruler, you have a group of rulers hell-bent on control, power, and their own wealth and prosperity at the expense of their people. And although they can be initially effective, and through sheer brutality and control long-lasting, these kinds of governments are doomed to fail from the start. And the people under the boot of such regimes will always seek to weaken the grip of a tyrannical government. And when the opportunity presents itself... They will most often take advantage of it. When this happens, you begin to see the crumbling of such power. You begin to see the will of the people to be free from coercive governments led by brutal and tyrannical men. You begin to see the crumbling of that government's power and influence and prestige in the world as the countries who were once subjugated by tyranny take action and move toward liberty and prosperity of the people for the benefit of the country. People yearn to be free, folks, And dictators always fall. They always do. Which is why America, as the antithesis to tyrannical regimes, is a vital global leader in freedom's endeavors. It's why the people of the world, and in some cases, and in this case specifically with Ukraine, leaders of a once subjugated country look to America for leadership and friendship and the strength to help them reach in their way the freedom from dictatorial men and their regimes. Russia and its communist leaders experienced a moment in time whereby they were the influence. They had the control and the power. They were regarded and feared in that part of the world, and they craved the power and control for themselves and the world as America sought to isolate it and to see to its demise as the leader of the free world. At the time of our birth, America set the precedent— And the old world in Russia would not abide by that. Instances of visionary men in Soviet Russia gave hope that the threat of tyranny in the world would give way to friendlier forms of government in Russia and allow the people to flourish. But as I said, the old world in the communist regime would not abide by that. Where there is good, there always seems to be evil. And I think Stalin would have been fine with Hitler's endeavors as long as Russia and his communist regime could benefit from it. And he could effectively rule his part of the world as long as Hitler's Germany remained an ally. If it were not for the ambitions of Hitler to rule the entire world himself, and he had not invaded Stalin's Russia, Stalin would have gone along with the totalitarian rule that would have emerged making Germany and Russia the rulers of the world. As it is, Germany failed, but the ambitions of Stalin remained, and he affected those ambitions first in his own country and then into the world. Like I said, dictators die, but others often take their place. And where truly visionary men with alter ambitions seek to change the dynamic in their country and in the world to one of freedom and prosperity for all, other men seek to maintain their power and prestige And when that's threatened, they lash out against their people. And the people who would endeavor to be free and determine their own destinies. Such form of government with such men are not easily thrown out people. And such forms of government as ours are not easily installed or emulated. Tyranny can be a long-time scourge. And if left unchecked and unchallenged, it will continue to swallow up the world and its people until nothing and no one is left to pioneer A better way, whereby we stand against oppression and poverty instead of being broken and subjugated, living a lie on our knees before the altar of an evil regime such as communism. You're on one side or the other. And as we are about to discover, Vladimir Putin would choose the side that would have repercussions in the years to come. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, nuclear arms lay in sites scattered across the former Soviet republics. Ukraine had inherited the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, including some 1,900 strategic nuclear weapons designed to strike the United States. Nothing in the post-Soviet space commanded more attention from the Bush administration and the Clinton administration than making sure that the Soviet Union's demise did not increase the number of nuclear-armed states. Washington brokered uh, with Kiev and Moscow the terms under which Ukraine had agreed to eliminate the strategic missiles, the missile silos and the bombers on its territory, and transferred the 1900 nuclear warheads to Russia for disassembly. A key element of this arrangement, the Budapest Accord, many Ukrainians would say it was the key element, was the readiness of the United States and Russia joined by Britain to provide security assurances. The Budapest Memorandum committed Washington, Moscow, and London, among other things, to respect the independence and sovereignty and existing borders of Ukraine, and to refrain from the threat or use of force against that country the kremlin has violated those commitments folks using soldiers in russian combat fatigues without identifying insignia who mr putin later admitted were russian moscow seized crimea back in march of 2014 russia subsequently encouraged and armed separatists in eastern ukraine i would argue that they supplied those separatists When the Ukrainian military appeared to gain the upper hand against the separatists, regular Russian army units entered Donetsk and Luhansk to support them. Since the Ukraine-Russia crisis erupted, Washington has provided political and economic support to Kyiv, as well as non-lethal military assistance. It's worked with the European Union to put in place increasingly tough sanctions on the Russian economy. Russia's been sanctioned for a long time now, folks. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you know it now. In 1994, Washington wrote Kiev a check for U.S. support in the Budapest Accord. Now, of course, Washington hoped that that check would never be cashed, but unfortunately, it's now been cashed, okay? I mean, we're we're at that point. This is not just a matter of assisting Ukraine in fulfillment of U.S. obligations. It's also about preserving the credibility of security assurances for the future. Do you not agree? These are the actions from this memorandum that the United States owes Ukraine for giving up the nuclear arms on its territory. Now, security assurances such as those in the Budapest memorandum You know, they don't carry as much weight as NATO security guarantees or the guarantees in the mutual security treaties that the United States has with Japan and South Korea. Still, security assurances have played a major role in the effort to freeze and end North Korea's nuclear program. These kind of assurances may not by themselves offer major leverage. However, when looking for ways to prevent nuclear proliferation... Washington and our partners should marshal every possible tool. The problem is, Russia's actions against Ukraine have completely discredited such security assurances. If a North Korean diplomat were to ask uh, his or her Ukrainian counterpart how the Budapest memorandum worked out, uh, the response would not be a good one, okay? Okay. At a September conference in Kyiv, former President Leonid Kuchma, who signed the Budapest Memorandum for Ukraine, said that Ukraine had been cheated. Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsunyuk referred to the notorious Budapest Memorandum. Such comments do not make good advertisements for future security assurances, I assure you. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here, folks. Beginning with the account of the fall of the Soviet Union, in 1991, and the account of the Budapest Memorandum, and the reference to it as notorious, and the, and the characterization of feeling that Ukraine gave as a feeling of having been cheated. This was from an article written by Stephen Pfeiffer from the Brookings Institution. And I agree with almost all of it, by the way. But do you know when this was written? It could have been written today, but no. It was written on Thursday, December 4th, 2014. We've been dealing with Putin's underhandedness and heavy handedness in his violation of sovereignty in Ukraine, at least since then. And I would argue even before that with the invasions of other former Soviet bloc countries, we could go all the way back to 2008. Remember who was president in 2014? How about 2008? Do you remember who was president in 2014 and 2008? That's right. Barack Obama and George W. Bush, respectively. Now, uh, without getting into the whole thing, okay, why did Russia invade Georgia in 2008? Well, it was the same kind of crap uh, that we're talking about today, all right? Although uh, I will admit, George W. Bush actually put Georgia in the MAP program, okay? It's kind of a program uh, that's the precursor of an effort to make a country a part of NATO, okay? Uh, Russia accused Georgia of aggression against South Ossetia and launched the large-scale land, air, and sea invasion of Georgia on August 8th with the pretext of a peace enforcement operation. Russia and South Ossetian forces uh, fought Georgian forces in and around South Ossetia for several days until Georgian forces retreated. He's been doing this for a long damn time, folks. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole thing with Georgia, but I'm going to tell you, Georgia and and his invasion of it and the circumstances surrounding it uh, are almost identical with what he's doing today to Ukraine. So, back to Vladimir Putin. In 1975, Putin joined the KGB and trained at the 401st KGB school in Leningrad. After training, he worked in the Second Chief Directorate of Counterintelligence before he was transferred to the First Chief Directorate, where he monitored foreigners and consular officials in Leningrad. In September 1984, Putin was sent to Moscow for further training at the Yuri Andropov Red Banner Institute. From 1985 to 1990, he served in Dresden, East Germany, using a cover identity as a translator. Russian-American Masha Gessen wrote in her 2012 biography of Putin, uh, Putin and his colleagues were reduced mainly to collecting press clippings, thus contributing to the mountains of useless information produced by the KGB. His work was also downplayed by former Stasi spy chief Marcus Wolff and Putin's former KGB colleague Vladimir Osoltsev. But journalist Catherine Belton wrote in 2020 that this downplaying was actually cover for Putin's involvement in KGB coordination and support for the terrorist Red Army faction, whose members were frequently hiding in East Germany with the support of the the Stasi. And Dresden was preferred as a marginal town with low presence of Western intelligence services. According to Putin's official biography, During the fall of the Berlin Wall that began on November 9th, 1989, he saved the files of the Soviet Cultural Center uh, and of the KGB Villa in Dresden for the official authorities of the would-be United Germany to prevent demonstrators, including KGB and Stasi agents, from obtaining and destroying them. After the collapse of the communist East German government, Putin was to resign from active KGB service because of suspicions that were aroused regarding his loyalty during demonstrations in Dresden and earlier, though the KGB and the Soviet Army still operated in eastern Germany. He returned to Leningrad in early 1990 as a member of the active reserves, where he worked for about three months with the International Affairs Section of Leningrad State University, reporting to Vice-Rector Yuri Molkanov. It was there that he looked for new KGB recruits, watched the student body, and renewed his friendship with the former professor, Anatoly Solbchak, who was soon to be the mayor of Leningrad. Putin claims that he resigned with the rank of lieutenant colonel on August twentieth, 1991, on the second day of the 1991 Soviet coup d'etat attempt against the Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev. Putin said as soon as the coup d'etat began... I immediately decided which side I was on, although he also noted that the choice was hard because he'd spent the best part of his life with, quote, the organs. In a 2017 interview with Oliver Stone, Putin said that he resigned from the KGB in 1991 following the coup against Mikhail Gorbachev as he did not agree with what had happened and did not want to be a part of the intelligence in the new administration. For many people who've been watching Vladimir Putin, The road to bloodshed in Ukraine began in Dresden, East Germany, after the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. At age 38, communism and the Soviet Union, seemingly defeated forever, Vladimir Putin returned to his native St. Petersburg, Russia. All he had to show for a 15-year spy career was about 200 pounds in savings. The Soviet Empire had disintegrated. And it was a personal and professional offense to Putin. And he seems unable to have lived it down. You know, one of the things that I'm reminded of uh, is when Germany lost World War I. Hitler was in the hospital for mustard gas exposure, and he'd heard of Germany's surrender while he was there. Hitler took this as a great personal and national offense. The surrender of Germany had awakened a great anger in Hitler. And when you read Hitler's writings, most notably Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, you understand that Hitler would never accept this defeat. He would never live it down. And we all know how the rest of history played out. Now, let's talk about maybe a little bit of the character of Vladimir Putin and what kind of a guy we're dealing with here and why. Vladimir Putin was born in a rat-infested Leningrad slum on October seventh, 1952. He was the only surviving child of Vladimir and Maria Putin. His war veteran father was a Communist Party member and a foreman in a factory making subway trains. Maria, his mother, uh, was at times a lab cleaner, a bakery worker, and a janitor. Uh, She had survived the Nazi siege of Leningrad while her husband was away fighting. Vladimir Putin wrote once, Once my mother fainted from hunger, people thought that she had died and they laid her out with the rest of the corpses. His former school teacher, Vera Dmitrovina Gurevich, said that there was no hot water, no bathtub, the toilet was horrendous, and it was so cold and awful. An astonishingly frank self-portrait published in 2000, Putin described the hordes of rats that infested the flats that he lived in. He recalled how he had cornered a huge rat, which then, as he said it, threw itself at me. Now, the rat was chasing me, he wrote. Luckily, I managed to slam the door shut on its nose. There, on that stair landing, I got a quick and lasting lesson in the meaning of the word cornered. Putin, who was small for his age, often got into fights with other boys, so he took up judo, and he became a black belt. Putin said in 2015, 50 years ago, the Leningrad street taught me a rule. If a fight is inevitable, you have to throw the first punch. Following the disintegration of the USSR, Ukraine and other ex Soviet republics gained independence from Russia. Putin described the USSR's collapse as the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. In 1997, he became chief of the Federal Security Service, which was the main successor of the KGB. On New Year's Eve, 1999, Russian President Boris Yeltsin quit his position and named Putin as acting president. He won presidential elections in 2000 and has maintained a vice-like grip on power since then, snuffing out all opposition. Now remember folks, Putin described the USSR's collapse as the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Putin saw the breakup of the Soviet empire, the potential loss of position in government, which would have led to his personal poverty, and the cascading calls for independence from former Soviet bloc countries like Georgia, Chechnya, and Ukraine. The glory of the Soviet Union was rapidly becoming history in the rearview mirror of the world. Now, I don't know who said this, all right, but this is a quote that I've seen often. The quote is, with Ukraine, Russia is an empire. Without it, Russia is just another country. The history between these two is long and often fraught with conflict. Ukraine had to fight to free itself from the Soviet Union. Official independence was declared on August 24th, 1991. And it came with a myriad of problems, not only for Russia, but for Vladimir Putin. In the next segment, folks, I'm gonna get into the timeline of Putin's latest invasion, the invasion of Ukraine. What he pulled yet again on the West the eu and nato i'm going to talk about the response from the european union nato and the response from the united states in particular as represented by that jack wagon one show pony of a president joe biden and then i'm going to offer you my unvarnished opinion as to what we are really dealing with and why we're dealing with it and what we should have done eight o'clock day one it's not going to be pretty folks You already know what you're dealing with and what you're going through because of our weak-ass response to Russia's tyranny. And that's on top of what you've already had to deal with, you know, with regard to COVID and the mandates that this jack-wagon president and his mad doctor, Anthony Fauci, placed upon you. Don't get me started on that whole thing because Ukraine is now the bigger fish, folks. We've endured the war in Afghanistan, and having finally come to the conclusion that we needed to leave and come home, we watched in horror and dread as this circus in the White House and its Pentagon Pony Soldier sideshow fucked it all up. And this is the moment when Vladimir Putin decided that now was the time, just like he did in 2014, just like he's been doing since 2008, measuring up our president and NATO and making the move when the calculus showed the best outcome. You will no doubt notice that in four years of Trump, Putin didn't dare invade Ukraine. Anyway, we're going to get into it in the last segment, so don't go anywhere. I'll be back on the other side. folks. It's time to make the chimichangas. So we've talked about the history of the Soviet Union and the communist government that allowed for it. We talked about the progression of such a regime and what it ultimately leads to and why. We covered the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Vladimir Putin from poverty to seeming obscurity to becoming the ruler of Russia. We've also just barely touched on the reasoning behind Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And incidentally, other former Soviet Union countries going all the way back to 2008. And we could even go as far back as uh, 1999 in Chechnya, when he orchestrated the chain of events leading to the fall and subjugation of Chechnya. We can say with some certainty that Putin had been forming his plan all along and was waiting for just the right moments in history when the world was least aware of and able or willing to stop his deadly intentions. So let's now really dig into the rest of the story, right? Starting with the most recent events and the prelude to war. In an article written by Peter Dickinson from the Atlantic Council uh, titled Putin's New Ukraine Essay Reveals Imperial Ambitions, he starts out by writing Russian President Vladimir Putin has outlined the historical basis for his claims against Ukraine in a controversial new essay that has been likened in some quarters to a declaration of war. The 5,000-word article entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, it was published on July 12th and features many of the talking points favored by Putin throughout the past seven years of undeclared war between Russia and Ukraine. He goes on to say, The Russian leader uses the essay to reiterate his frequently voiced conviction that Russians and Ukrainians are one people while blaming the current collapse on bilateral ties on foreign plots and anti-Russian conspiracies. In one particular ominous passage, he openly questions the legitimacy of Ukraine's borders and argues that much of modern-day Ukraine occupies historically Russian lands, before stating, matter-of-factly, Russia was robbed. Elsewhere, he hints at a fresh annexation of Ukrainian territory, claiming, I am becoming more and more convinced of this. Kyiv simply does not need Donbass. Putin ends his lengthy treatise by appearing to suggest that Ukrainian statehood itself ultimately depends on Moscow's consent, declaring, I am confident that true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in a partnership with Russia. Stockholm Free World Forum senior fellow Anders Osland branded the article a masterclass in disinformation and one step short of a declaration of war. Meanwhile, uh, Russian newspapers claimed the essay was Putin's final ultimatum to Ukraine. Nobody in Ukraine needs reminding of the grim context behind Putin's treatise. Since the spring of 2014, Russia and Ukraine have been engaged in an armed conflict that has cost over 14,000 Ukrainian lives and left millions displaced. The Kremlin continues to occupy Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula— and much of the industrial Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Earlier this year, Moscow massed over 100,000 troops close to the border with Ukraine in what some military observers described as a dress rehearsal for a full-scale Russian offensive. This week's publication of Putin's grievances in such a formal and high-profile manner has inevitably fueled speculation that the Kremlin could be preparing the ground for a major escalation in hostilities. As the debate continues, the Atlantic Council invited a selection of Ukrainian and international commentators to share their thoughts on what Putin's article may mean for Russia's future policy toward Ukraine. Melinda Herring, the deputy director of the Eurasia Center in the Atlantic Council, is quoted as saying, Putin's delusional and dangerous article reveals what we already knew, Moscow cannot countenance letting Ukraine go. The Russian president's masterpiece alone should inspire the West to redouble its efforts to bolster Kiev's ability to choose its own future, and Zelensky should respond immediately and give Putin a much-needed history lesson. Danlo Lubinsky, director of the Kiev Security Forum, is quoted as saying, Putin understands that Ukrainian statehood and the Ukrainian national idea pose a threat to Russian imperialism. He doesn't know how to solve this problem. Many in his inner circle are known to advocate the use of force, but for now, the Russian leader has no solutions. Instead, he has written an amateurish propaganda piece designed to provide followers of his Russian world ideology with talking points. However, his arguments are weak and simply repeat what anti-Ukrainian Russian chauvinists have been saying for decades. Putin's essay is an expression of imperial agony and that is absolutely right folks i've read putin's dissertation okay and as i pointed out before putin's lied about his reasons for invading ukraine okay he wants us to think that it's all about nato and russia's national security interests hell we've had people in this country bandy about all of that okay that's that's all they're talking about or at least that's all they were talking about okay nato's you know nato's expansion Russia's concern over NATO's expansion, and all of that. But in Putin's own words, it's all about justifying Russia's ownership of Ukraine. He doesn't even mention NATO by name until the very end of the dissertation. Uh, I'm going to read some passages from that dissertation. Putin's quoted as saying from this piece, First of all, I would like to emphasize that the wall that has emerged in recent years between Russia and Ukraine, between the parts of what is essentially the same historical and spiritual space, to my mind, is our great common misfortune and tragedy. These are, first and foremost, the consequences of our own mistakes made at different periods in time. You think he's talking about 1991? He goes on saying, but these are also the result of deliberate efforts— By those forces that have always sought to undermine our unity, the formula they apply has been known from time immemorial, divide and rule. There's nothing new here. Hence, the attempts to play on the national question and sow discord among people, the overarching goal being to divide and then to pit the parts of a single people against one another. In another passage, uh, you know, he's taking us all the way to ancient Rus', long before the ninth century, folks. He's quoted as saying, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. Slavic and other tribes across the vast territory from Ladoga, Novgorod, Kiev, and Chernigov were bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian. Economic ties, the rule of the princes of the Rurik dynasty, and after the baptism of Rus, the orthodox faith. The spiritual choice made by St. Vladimir, who was both prince of Novogorod and grand prince of Kiev, still largely determines our affinity today. The throne of Kiev held a dominant position in ancient Rus. This has been the custom since the late 9th century, the tale of bygone years captured for posterity, the words of Oleg the prophet about Kiev. Let it be the mother of all Russian cities. In another passage, we see his true feelings here. We see Putin's true feelings and his perception of what's going on with regard to Ukraine. He's quoted as saying, again, for many people in Ukraine, the anti-Russia project is simply unacceptable. Yeah, it's unacceptable to you. He goes on saying, and there are millions of such people. But they're not allowed to raise their heads. They've had their legal opportunity to defend their point of view, in fact, taken away from them. They are intimidated and driven underground. Not only are they persecuted for their convictions, for the spoken word, for the open expression of their position, but they are also killed. Murderers, as a rule, go unpunished in Ukraine. Today, the right patriot of Ukraine is only the one who hates Russia. Moreover, the entire Ukrainian statehood, as we understand it, is proposed to be further built exclusively on this idea. Hate and anger, as world history has repeatedly proved this, are a very shaky foundation for sovereignty, fraught with many serious risks and dire consequences. All the subterfuges associated with the anti-Russia project are clear to us, and we will never allow our historical territories, and people close to us living there to be used against Russia. And to those who will undertake such an attempt, I would like to say that this is the way they will destroy their own country. The incumbent authorities in Ukraine like to refer to Western experience, seeing it as a model to follow. Just have a look at how Austria and Germany, the USA and Canada, live next to each other. Close in ethnic composition, culture, in fact sharing one language— They remain sovereign states with their own interests, with their own foreign policy. But this doesn't prevent them from the closest integration or allied relations. They have very conditional, transparent borders. And when crossing them, the citizens feel at home. They create families, study, work, and do business. Incidentally, so do millions of those born in Ukraine who now live in Russia. We see them as our own close people. He goes on to say, this is what is actually happening. First of all, we are facing the creation of a climate of fear in Ukrainian society, aggressive rhetoric, indulging neo-Nazis and militarizing the country. Along with that, we are witnessing not just complete dependence, but direct external control, including the supervision of the Ukrainian authorities, security services and armed forces by foreign advisors, military development of the territory of Ukraine and deployment of NATO infrastructure. It is no coincidence that the aforementioned flagrant law on indigenous peoples was adopted under the cover of large-scale NATO exercises in Ukraine. This is also a disguise for the takeover of the rest of the Ukrainian economy and the exploitation of its natural resources. The sale of agricultural land is not far off, and it's obvious who will buy it up. From time to time, Ukraine is indeed given financial resources and loans, but under their own conditions and pursuing their own interests with preferences and benefits for Western companies. Today, these words may be perceived by some with hostility, and they can be interpreted in many possible ways. Yet, many people will hear me, and I will say one thing. Russia has never been and will never be anti-Ukraine, and what Ukraine will be well, that is up to its citizens to decide. Yeah, no shit, Yakami. Especially since the Ukrainians decided through an election to be free of Russia's communist rule. Did you forget the part where the Soviet Union had collapsed? You know, they lost the Cold War, all right? You know, it just wasn't the Politburo that lost. It was Russia. You lost, you Topaya Let's recap, shall we? Voters were asked, do you support the Act of Declaration of Independence of Ukraine? The text of the declaration was included as a preamble to the question. The referendum was called by the Parliament of Ukraine to confirm the Act of Independence, which was adopted by the Parliament on August 24, 1991. Citizens of Ukraine expressed overwhelming support for independence. In the referendum... registered voters, which translates to 84.18% of the electorate, took part. And among them, 28,804,071 voters, or 92.3%, voted yes. On the same day, a presidential election took place. All six candidates campaigned in favor of a yes vote in the independence referendum. Leonid Kravchuk, the parliament chairman and de facto head of the state, was elected to serve as the first president of Ukraine. From December 2nd, 1991 and onward, Ukraine was globally recognized by other countries as an independent state. Also in December, the president of the Russian Uh, SFSR Boris Yeltsin recognized Ukraine as independent. In a telegram of congratulations, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev sent to Kravchuk soon after the referendum, Gorbachev included his hopes for close Ukrainian cooperation and understanding in the formation of a union of sovereign states. Ukraine was the second most powerful republic in the Soviet Union, both economically and politically, behind Russia. And its secession ended any realistic chance of Gorbachev keeping the Soviet Union together. By December of 1991, all former Soviet republics except for the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic and the Kazakh SSR had formally seceded from the Union. A week after his election, Kravchuk joined with Yeltsin and Belarusian leader Stanislav Shushkevich in signing the Belavezha Accords which declared that the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. The Soviet Union officially dissolved on December 26th, 1991. Boom! Vladimir Putin seems to forget all this. And like I said, the whole 5,000-word paper that he wrote wasn't about national interest or national security as much as it was about a warped view of history arguing for the Russian ownership of Ukraine, Putin knows how valuable Ukraine is in its industries, its natural resources, agriculture, the whole shebang, right? But his main objective is to remain relevant in the world and seize what was lost after the humiliating defeat of the communist regime that he was a part of. But here's the thing, folks. Putin, you know, is not only a communist tyrant. He's a freaking gangster. He's a thug who used Russian oligarchy and mafias to enrich himself in a failing and economically inferior country. And like Hitler, he couldn't stand the idea of being irrelevant on the world stage. He couldn't stand the loss that Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, had incurred. And so he planned, he waited, and he acted. And every time he had to pause in his objectives you've got to know that he was fuming at the setback. So now, after witnessing our dismal failure in our withdrawal from Afghanistan, Vladimir Putin made the decision that now was the time. John Daniszewski from the Associated Press uh, wrote a little article, um, and I forget where I got it from. It was on the internet. Uh, He wrote an article that uh, starts out, In the Russian president's version of Ukraine's history, the territory now controlled in Kyiv was always a part of Russia. While that serves Putin's purpose, it's also a fiction that denies Ukraine's own 1,000-year history. World leaders have dismissed Putin's claims in his address to the nation when he signed a decree recognizing the independence of the separatist Ukrainian regions uh, collectively known as Donbass okay, that's that's Luhansk and Donetsk. But those claims nonetheless lay the groundwork for war. Now, Danazuski makes three major points here. I will go through them one by one. Uh, the first point that he writes about, Ukraine is russia, okay the The, the claim that Ukraine is Russia. During his televised address, Vladimir Putin, floated its case for codifying the cleavage of two rebel territories from Ukraine by arguing that the very idea of Ukrainian statehood was a fiction. With the conviction of an authoritarian, unburdened by historical nuance, Vladimir Putin declared Ukraine an invention of the Bolshevik revolutionary leader, Vladimir Lenin. According to Putin, Lenin endowed Ukraine with a sense of statehood by allowing it autonomy within the newly created Soviet state, okay? Now, experts don't dispute that the Bolsheviks recognized Ukraine as a separate socialist republic in 1917, following the foundation of the Soviet Union. But Ukraine can trace its history back to Kievan Rus, a loose federation dating from the Middle Ages that is widely accepted to form the basis of the country's national identity. Now, you'll recognize that, from Putin's dissertation that I read a little bit earlier, okay? All the same, Putin's contrary claim that there had never been a historical Ukraine until Soviet times is being used to justify a potential invasion of Ukraine. And as with all historical narratives, there were elements of truth in what Putin was saying in that Ukrainians and Russians are related Eastern Slavic peoples whose destinies have been both intertwined and separated throughout history. But in justifying a potential Russian occupation, Vladimir Putin chose to focus on the time of Russia's maximum dominance over Ukraine, overlooking that it's been a separate state recognized by international treaties and explicitly recognized by Russia over the last 30 years. You know, from 1991 on. Point number two that he makes... Uh, is about Russian genocide. He writes, Another key element of the Kremlin's grounds for a conflict with Ukraine is allegations from Moscow that the government in Kiev is committing genocide against ethnic Russians in the two separatist-controlled regions. The claim has been dismissed as absurd by the Atlantic Council, okay, which is a think tank. I mentioned them earlier. But Putin justified the deployment of troops to Luhansk and Donetsk by arguing that they were peacekeepers. His government has repeatedly claimed that the Ukrainian military has targeted civilians with historic links to Russia during the shadow war that's been taking place in the Donbass region since 2014. You know, the year that he invaded Crimea? He goes on to write, but there's been no serious efforts uh, to support this claim. Instead, the allegations represent a grotesque distortion of reality that seeks to blame the victims for a war of aggression orchestrated by Moscow that has killed thousands of Ukrainians and forced millions to flee their homes. Which is where we find ourselves today, folks. War in Ukraine, waged by a a once-a-Soviet, always-a-Soviet Russian leader in an effort to regain the glory of his long-dead communist regime. We talked about the history, we talked about the players and their motivations. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, everything that has been done behind the scenes and in front of God and everybody, has led to this. On November 10th, 2021, the United States reported an unusual movement of Russian troops near the borders of Ukraine. By November 28th, Ukraine reported a buildup of 92,000 Russian troops. On December 7th, 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden warned President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, of strong economic and other measures if Russia attacks Ukraine. On December 17th, Putin proposed limits on NATO's activities in Eastern Europe, such as a prohibition on Ukraine ever joining NATO. This is rejected. On January 17th, 2022, Russian troops began arriving in Russia's ally, Belarus, for military exercises. On January 19th, 2022, the U.S. gave Ukraine 200 million in security aid. We knew what was coming. On January 19th, 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden stated during a press conference that I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having a fight about what to do, what not to do, etc., Many critics of the U.S. president felt this was leaving the door open for President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, to invade. On January 24th, NATO put troops on standby. On January 25th, Russian exercises involving 6,000 troops and 60 jets took place in Russia near Ukraine and Crimea. On February 10th, Russia and Belarus began 10 days of military maneuvers. On February 17th, fighting escalated in the separatist regions of eastern Ukraine. February 21st, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia recognizes the independence of two pro-Russian breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine. This led to a first round of economic sanctions from NATO countries the following day. In his televised speech before the announcement, Putin laid out that he believed that Vladimir Lenin, was the author and architect of Ukraine and labeled Ukrainians who have taken down Lenin's monuments ungrateful descendants, saying this is what they call decommunization. Do you want decommunization? Well, that just suits us just fine. But it's unnecessary, as they say, to stop halfway. We are ready to show you what real decommunization means for Ukraine. Shortly before 6 a.m. Moscow time, On February 24th, Putin announced that he had made the decision to launch a special military operation in eastern Ukraine. In his address, Putin claimed that there were no plans to occupy Ukrainian territory and that he supported the right of the peoples of Ukraine to self-determination. Putin also stated that Russia sought the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. He said that all responsibility for possible bloodshed will be entirely on the conscience of the regime ruling on the territory of Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Defense asked air traffic control units of Ukraine to stop flights, and the airspace over Ukraine was restricted to non-civilian air traffic, and the whole area was deemed an active conflict zone by the European Union Aviation Safety Agency. Within minutes of Putin's announcement, Explosions were reported in Kiev, Kharkiv, Odessa, and the Donbass. Ukrainian officials said that Russian troops had landed in Mariupol in Odessa, and had launched cruise and ballistic missiles at airfields, military headquarters, and military depots in Kiev, Kharkiv, and Dnipro. Military vehicles entered Ukraine through Sinkivka, at the point where Ukraine meets Belarus and Russia at around 6.48 a.m. local time. A video captured Russian troops entering Ukraine from Russian-annexed Crimea. The Kremlin planned to initially target artillery and missiles at command and control centers and then send fighter jets and helicopters to quickly gain air superiority. The Center for Naval Analyses said that Russia would create a pincer movement to encircle Kyiv and envelop Ukraine's forces in the east, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies identifying three axes of advance, from Belarus in the north, from Donetsk, and from Crimea in the south. The U.S. said it believed that Russia intended to decapitate Ukraine's government and install their own with U.S. intelligence officials believing that Kyiv would fall within 96 hours, given the circumstances on the ground. They couldn't have been further from the truth. According to former Ukrainian Deputy Minister of Internal Affairs Anton Harashenko, now serving as an official government advisor, just after 6.30 a.m. Ukraine time, Russian forces were invading by way of the land near the city of Kharkiv, and large-scale amphibious landings were reported in the city of Maripol. At 7.40 a.m., troops were also entering the country from Belarusian territory. The Ukrainian border force reported attacks on sites in Luhansk Oblast, Sumy Oblast, and Kharkiv Oblast, Chernihiv Oblast, Zitomir Oblast, as well as from Crimea. The Ukrainian Interior Ministry reported that Russian forces captured various villages in Luhansk. The Ukrainian Center for Strategic Communication reported that the Ukrainian army repelled an attack near Shastia near Luhansk, and retook control of the town, claiming nearly 50 casualties from the Russian side. Shortly before 7 a.m., Zelensky announced the introduction of martial law in Ukraine. Zelensky also announced that Russia-Ukraine relations were being severed, effective immediately. Russian missiles targeted Ukrainian infrastructure, including Borispol International Airport, Ukraine's largest airport. It's about 18 miles east of Kiev. At 10 a.m., it was reported during the briefing of the Ukrainian presidential administration that Russian troops had invaded Ukraine from the north. Russian troops were said to be active in Kharkiv and Chernihiv in near Sumy. Zelensky's press service also reported that Ukraine had repulsed an attack in Volyn Oblast. At 10:30 a.m., the Ukrainian Defense Ministry reported that Russian troops in Chernihiv Oblast had been stopped and a major battle near Kharkiv was in progress. Mariupol and Shastia had been fully reclaimed. In the Battle of Anatov Airport, Russian airborne troops seized the Hostomel Airport in Hostomel, a suburb of Kiev, after being transported by helicopters early in the morning. A Ukrainian counteroffensive to recapture the airport was launched later in the day. The Rapid Response Brigade of the Ukrainian National Guard stated that it had fought at the airfield, shooting down three of 34 Russian helicopters. The fighting becomes intense in these areas and throughout Ukraine. But as you no doubt know, it's become absolutely brutal, as the Russian forces have been damn near successful in their attempts to encircle Kiev. By 12.04 p.m., Russian troops advancing from Crimea moved toward the city of Novakakovka in Kyrgyzstan. Later that day, Russian troops entered the city of Kyrgyzstan and took control of the North Crimean Canal, which would allow them to resume water supplies for the peninsula. At 4 p.m., Zelensky said that the fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces had erupted in the ghost cities of Chernobyl and Pripyat. By around 6.20 p.m., the Chernobyl nuclear power plant was under Russian control, as were the surrounding areas. At 4.18 p.m., Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, proclaimed a curfew lasting from 10 o'clock in the, at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. At 10 o'clock p.m., the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine announced that Russian forces had captured Snake Island following a naval and air bombardment of the island. All 13 border guards on the island were assumed to have been killed in the bombardment after refusing to surrender to a Russian warship. A recording of the guards refusing an offer to surrender went viral on social media. President Zelensky announced that the presumed dead border guards would be posthumously granted the title of Hero of Ukraine, the country's highest honor. 17 civilians were confirmed killed, including 13 killed in southern Ukraine, three in Mariupol, and one in Kharkiv. Zelensky stated that 137 Ukrainian citizens, both soldiers and civilians, died on the first day of the invasion. Now you'll remember the Snake Island incident. There were a lot of news outlets that came out uh, to report that that had been propaganda, had been fake news. It's presumed that the individuals uh, had died, and then later reports came out and said that they may have lived. I don't remember if they had or not, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they, they it's been found that they had lived and were captured. But you know, there was a lot of people uh, that were kind of putting the. Putting the kibosh on that story, and it may not have been true at all. But I'll tell you what: at the time, I, re- I really didn't give a damn. It was the most awesome story of the day. Thirteen Malduens on an island, telling a warship, a Russian warship, to go fuck themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's that's so American, isn't it? Shortly after 11 p.m. President Zelensky ordered a general mobilization of all Ukrainian males between 18 and 60 years old. For the same reason, Ukrainian males from that age group were banned from leaving Ukraine. Ukraine's foreign minister said Putin had launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and that peaceful cities were under strikes. This is a war of aggression. Ukraine will defend itself and will win. The world can and must stop Putin. The time to act is now. Speaking at an emergency UN Security Council meeting, the Ukrainian ambassador said it was too late to talk about de-escalation. He's quoted as saying, I call on every one of you to do everything possible to stop the war. And so ended the first day of the war. And since then, we have witnessed the intense bravery and spirit of independence of the Ukrainian people. And not since the days of the Gulf War have we been able to see such documentation, video documentation, of such a war. As the drama unfolded before our eyes, we saw the Ukrainian military and its people defend their sovereign land. We witnessed the lies and the distortions and the justifications of a tyrant exposed. And we knew the man was a liar as we began to see the Russian advance stall in the north. We learned that not only had Putin tried to lie to the world, he had also lied to his own military. The messages of disbelief in what they were experiencing upon their entry into Ukraine were very revealing. Russian conscripts, 18, 19-year-olds messaging their family at home that they had thought that they would be welcomed in Ukraine, and instead they were branded as fascists and tyrants, invaders. The spirit of the Russian soldier left his body, and only God would be able to save him. You could almost feel the realization of the Russian troops that what it was they had been duped into doing was a lie. And as the advance in the north stalled and they had time to reflect on where they were and what they were doing, you could almost sense their spiritual defeat as the convoys had stopped, unable to move unable to feed or replenish themselves, a 40-mile-long spearhead had lost itself. In the days of the initial invasion, the fighting was intense. Many people, myself included, thought that Putin would roll through Ukraine simply because he had the numbers. And he does have the numbers. I thought that he would roll through Ukraine simply because he had those numbers. And, and really, nothing to sneeze at equipment. Right? Tanks, air power. But as time wore on, it would appear that the Russian army had neither the will nor the ability to swiftly take Ukraine, as Ukrainian people and its military brought multiple cans of kick-ass to those invaders. As they slowly advanced into towns and cities, the Russians resigned to their mission as ordered, and in part to defend themselves from the Ukraine military forces, resumed the invasion, and the convoys were on the move again. Having finally received their orders, from their commander in Moscow. The fighting became intensely fierce, and the Ukrainian military performed admirably. Indeed, the reporting from the ground and the statements from the Ukrainian president, defiance in the face of Russian aggression and threats from a man who dared not come to Ukraine himself, were heard by the American people. No matter what you thought of the man or his government, you had to admit that the things Zelensky said with regard to very American principles of freedom and liberty, defiance in the face of oppression and subjugation, were deeply moving. If there's one thing we as Americans understand, it's the principle of a people free to determine their own destinies without equivocation or impediment from an evil regime. I've continued to watch as the tactics of Putin's army have increasingly become focused against the Ukrainian civilians while simultaneously he makes his demands in the name of peace as dictated by Vladimir Putin. I've listened to the accounts of suffering of the people and we've all seen the video footage of hospitals and schools and movie theaters and, and, you know, movie theaters, for God's sake, being bombed and shelled with civilians inside them. And we've heard the pleas for more to be done in defense of Ukraine, to save the Ukrainian people from madness. They begged for America to save them. Yeah, America, the last real bastion of hope for the oppressed in this world. As I listened to the Ukrainian woman plead for President Biden's help, I thought to myself, my God, they actually believe in us. Many in America, while sympathetic, also knew the score as far as Joe Biden went. It's a cliche from fiction, I know, but it's never been more true than it is today. With great power comes great responsibility. Joe Biden did everything to not only exacerbate the energy crisis we're facing today by halting the XL pipeline build and stopping industry from producing our own energy and being able to provide Europe with an alternative to Russian oil. But he gave the green light for Russia to increase its capabilities in the Nord Stream Pipeline project and forced Europe into an energy reliance on Russia. Now, Germany, for example, had done kind of, you know, a lot to hurt itself as it swallowed the whole Green New Deal bullshit and pretty much made itself reliant on Russia anyway. But that's another story. Joe Biden's short-sightedness in every aspect of energy and foreign policy have us where we are today. And his barely coherent and cognitively struggling demeanor, as well as his withdrawal from Afghanistan and the leaving behind thousands of Americans and dual Americans and special visa Afghanis, along with the response to the 13 dead American service members, told Putin all he needed to know about Joe Biden the United States positions, and quite frankly, told him all he needed to know about NATO and the UN. Joe Biden did nothing but talk. And as we watched and Ukraine asked for sanctions prior to the invasion, Biden just kept talking. You know, this administration talks tough about all the sanctions, right? But has sanctions done anything to stop Putin from ravaging Ukraine? He's still there. Did all this tough talk from Biden stop Putin from shelling civilian shelters? Did it stop him from killing innocent women and children? And then the brilliant Joe Biden says, we're not going to put boots on the ground. Totally taking that off the table for Putin. What moron does that? The power that America has to change the world for the better is being wielded by people who cower at the threats Putin makes about nuclear options. And chemical and biological weapons. It's Putin who's allowed to characterize this fight. It's Putin that's being allowed to define what provocative is when we talk of responses to his tyranny. This administration, quite frankly, the so-called civilized nations in this world have cowered in fear because of Putin's threats. And because of that, Ukraine suffers. And what do we do? We send Kamala frickin' Harris to Europe, This woman is the worst vice president and politician I have ever seen. I'm surprised that the president of Poland didn't just laugh her out of the room. But of course, he didn't have to, right? She did it all by herself with that hollow, fake-ass laugh that kind of reminds me of Hillary Clinton when she laughs, incidentally. Kamala Harris has ensured that whenever she walks into a room there's nothing she isn't going to say or laugh about that won't cause others to cringe at the absolute stupidity that is Kamala Harris. She's a frickin' dunce. And my 14-year-old boy has more sense than this feckless, on-the-verge-of-a-breakdown bitch in the White House. Yeah, I know, language, all right? I'll put another quarter in the thing. But I'm telling you, folks, when you look at just how incompetent these people are, you can't help but just pull your hair out with frustration. Because we could be so much more and do so much more. And if there ever was a time to do something, isn't it now when the evil that is Putin and his communist regime seek to intimidate the world in order to conquer a free people? You know, I'm kind of reminded of a post that I made on the Book of Face one night uh, as I watched the footage of the dead and the suffering of the Ukrainian people at the hands of Putin and then listened to a segment on Tucker Carlson about those of us who called for action before Putin invaded and then for more action after he invaded. You know, those of us who believe the best way to stop tyranny's march in Ukraine and in so many other places in the world was to confront it head on. You know, the gist of that segment was, you know, we weren't thinking about the future. We weren't thinking beyond today. That any no-fly zone for any reason would be automatically World War Three that we would have to shoot down Russians and that it would start World War III, remember? And I remember thinking to myself, well, maybe so, okay? I mean, after all, we blinked. But I remember thinking about the question that I asked in a previous episode and how I keep going back to that question. Are we still the greatest nation the world has ever known? And I, I, you know, I believe that we are, okay? I, I don't believe that we're completely lost, Okay you know, even in light of all the problems that we're facing today. I believe that we are. And that is precisely why when dictators and tyrants look us in the eye and tell us to move and tell us to blink, we should stare them down and force them to blink first. Putin made all those threats because he knows he can't win a conventional conflict with the United States. But as Putin is known for saying, nuclear war. No one wins, and it should never be fought. Putin does believe that. And he counted on our feckless and fearful reaction to what he said in his threats. And we didn't disappoint him either. I assure you, I say what I say here because I feel as strongly about this as Churchill did in World War II. And I believe the more that we make this case, perhaps people will be persuaded to at least think of our principles instead of our self-absorbed security. People have said, if you support the idea of a more direct role in stopping Putin, you're not thinking beyond today. There was this guy on on, on that Tucker Carlson episode. Uh, I can't remember his name. This guy, he, he does simulations, okay? Conflict simulations and projections. 40% of the time in these simulations, Russia went nuclear. No mention of scale, you know, whether they were tactical nukes or ICBMs. But anyway, Russia goes nuclear, okay? So for him and for a lot of other people, this conflict is horrifyingly real and dangerously close to a nuclear conflict if we don't move toward vigorous diplomacy to find an end to the war. And the message is, those who say a more active measure in expelling Putin from Ukraine is required must be saying we should have a war at all cost or that we don't fully understand what being proactive means, that we're hell-bent on World War III because we're not thinking beyond today. We're being emotional in our response and in responding to Putin's actions emotionally. Well, what's wrong with emotion when it is right in principle? I'm a patriot and a defender of freedom and a guardian against tyranny. You think this hyperbole? I don't. I believe in being these things as much as I can possibly be. But I don't stop at the shoreline of the United States. It isn't just for me, folks. And I'm not the only one who believes this on a very spiritual level. The concept of independence and fighting for it and rallying the world to the cause isn't just for America or just an American concept. People keep saying we can't be the world police. Sure, I agree with that, to a point. But if you remember, Kuwait, who was never a member of NATO, was defended. We expelled a tyrant from a country that he had no business being in. It didn't matter what he thought, or that he thought a certain way about Kuwait, or the region in general. Nobody cared that Saddam Hussein reasoned, as Putin has reasoned, that Saddam's Iraq needed to invade Kuwait. Nobody gave a damn. It was naked aggression and black heart subjugation and murder. Saddam Hussein was a murderous tyrant who killed people for his gain. So we pushed him out. You know why? Because freedom. A lot of people said it was for oil. And I say, so what? Did you want that tyrant in charge of a large portion of this world's oral reserves? I didn't. But even more important than that, the Kuwaiti people. At least somebody thought they were worth going to war for. Ukraine has been reaching for the West and NATO and the European Union for about 30 years now, trying for three decades to climb out of the hole that it was in as a result of decades of communism and corruption. Do you know how difficult it is to fundamentally transform a corrupt system to one that is not? It's almost impossible without any real support. The American government is arguably rife with corruption especially in this administration, and the Democrat Party, and the government at large, and we're going to justify doing nothing because Ukraine has corruption problems? Oh, trust me, folks, I've heard this argument. And again, nobody was seriously moving to make Ukraine a member of NATO. EU membership? Nope. Nobody was having it because they feared Putin more than they admired and respected America. Today, we are literally watching a country fight to the very last man, woman, and child for the deeply held spiritual belief in liberty, and we are doing nothing but talking, applying sanctions against rich oligarchs while Putin keeps chewing on Ukraine. This isn't some internal conflict, folks. This is an independent nation being destroyed by an evil regime hell-bent on getting what it wants and damn the consequences. Oh, sure, we're sending javelins and stingers, you know, other countries are chipping in arms and ammo. But the Pentagon actually spent more time finding ways to say no to the Polish MiGs that the Ukrainians asked for than they did trying to find ways to say yes to Ukraine's defense against Putin. As the president had said, support Ukraine in every way possible. Yeah, I guess that's except when it comes to, you know, the things that Ukraine says it needs. I'm thankful that these ass clowns weren't in charge in World War II. But, you know, conversely, I'm deeply sorry that they were in charge of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Now, you can send all the bullets you want. You can send all the bullets to Ukraine you want. Sooner or later, Russia chokes Ukraine out. It escalates its indiscriminate bombing. And Kiev is going to look a lot like Aleppo. And the supply lines cut off and destroyed The people of Ukraine will be forced to kneel or die. Think beyond today. We're not thinking about beyond today. We are thinking beyond today. And I'm not thinking of myself, nor just my country. Diplomacy and talks surely have their place. But while Zelensky entertains Putin in talks, Putin continues to ravage Ukraine and murder innocent men, women and children. If you allow Russia to take Ukraine today, you will only embolden the enemies of America and the free world to do anything they reason is necessary or desirous of their regimes with zero consequence tomorrow. If you trade half of Ukraine to Putin for a ceasefire today, you will have stepped on 40 million Ukrainian votes for independence from Russia and ensured that Russia will only surreptitiously invade the rest of Ukraine tomorrow. If you endlessly talk and wring your hands over Putin's threats to the world today, you will signal to the rest of the world that you do not, in fact, stand against tyranny tomorrow, as was demonstrated by this administration when it didn't honor the promise that it made to Ukraine in the Budapest Accord 18 years ago. Today, if we do not stand next to Ukraine as they fight, as we did in our own fight for independence, then tomorrow... No country on the planet will ever believe in our place in the world as leaders of the free world and defenders of liberty against the bold, cold, cruel tyrant that exists. President Biden said we stand with Ukraine. He said we stand up against bullies, which incidentally is the dumbest characterization of tyranny that I have ever heard. We stand up against tyranny, subjugation, murder. If we believe what he said then when in God's name are we going to act on that stand and on that principle? Right this very minute, we are standing at the back of the room, cowering behind Ukraine. For the love of God and the love of his gift of free will and the desire to breathe free, we are giving credence to Putin's point of view as we watch mass graves being dug for the dead. If we do not act today, we may not be able to act tomorrow because we have paralyzed ourselves with the thought of World War III and a nuclear exchange. Marco Rubio keeps saying that people don't understand what a no-fly zone really is, that it means shooting down Russian aircraft and anti-aircraft defenses. And that means automatically World War III and being in direct conflict with Russia. Is he being purposefully condescending? Trust me. The American people know, I know, and the American people know what this means. Now, I've personally been in combat. I've seen war. I saw it. I smelled it. I listened to it. Two years of my life, and I can still smell the smells, and I can still see the children, naked but hopeful whenever we pass them by. A diplomatic solution is preferable, folks. World War III is not something I or anyone else wants. So if anyone can tell me what will push Putin back into Russia and out of Ukraine to include Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, the Donbass region, all of Ukraine, and restoring Ukraine's independence as voted for by the people of Ukraine without direct action such as no-fly zones, I'm all ears, folks. You tell me. By all means, please tell me what that is. Because every day that we waver and cower from the threats made by Putin, people die, and a tyrant brings his fight closer to our shores. But as I said before, and Putin himself has demonstrated, Putin will not accept a complete withdrawal. He will not accept Ukraine independence. He'll continue to completely wreck Ukraine and murder civilians to subjugate a nation, all for control, power, and the former glory of the Soviet Union. A tiger doesn't eat once today and satiate his hunger for tomorrow. It is futile to try to negotiate with a hungry tiger when your head is in its mouth. And we see the truth of that today. Russia is still in Ukraine, and the Ukrainian people and their leader refuse to surrender one inch of sovereign Ukrainian land. But the tiger waits them out. And nothing we say, nothing the UN or NATO or the G20, nothing that they say is going to change that. So, if not now, when? If we can't answer the call that we were meant to answer today, then when? I asked not that long ago if we still deserve to think of ourselves as the greatest nation the world has ever known. And I ask again, do we I mean, doesn't it bother anyone else that Ukraine and Zelensky felt more American to us than our own American president? By God, we hope that enough military arms and support are enough, because as brave as they are, as noble as their cause is, as tough as they are, I fear that if Putin isn't expelled from Ukraine, we will watch these great men and women fighting for their freedom as once we did ours, be defeated and their homes destroyed as this communist regime and Vladimir Putin signal to the world's bad actors that the America of old and our resolve to see such evil regimes on the ash heap of history is all but a shadow of its former self. And then when we have watched what our inaction and cowardice has wrought for an entire nation, the same idiots that we put in power here will try to tell us we averted World War III. If not now, than when. People of Ukraine, I hope they understand that there are Americans who increasingly want our government to do more than what we're doing today. I hope that they understand that Americans are deeply connected to what it is that they fight for and why. And for me personally, if there were any fight that I would be willing to fight under the American banner of liberty, it's this one. We hope you continue to fight admirably And we hope that you win this fight. And God willing, you will win.
0: That's
2: all I got for now, folks. And as per usual, it was long. And I really wanted to get it out uh, way before this, but you know how it is, folks. We work for a living. In April, I'm going to be taking a small vacation with Junior, so I'm really going to be under the gun to unleash another episode. Uh, and I think I'm going to be talking about the Thomas Transgender Affair. That's right, folks. The swimmer known as Leah Thomas. And, of course, the issue of men, women, and this insane idea that men can be women and that they should be competing against women in women's sports. I'm going to drop like a rush hour Rambo, and I'm going to kick it right in the nuts, folks. And then I'm going to go a bit local, okay? Those of you in my hometown and county have no doubt noticed that crime is on the rise. Bank robberies in Richfield, shootings in Albemarle, I want to remind people of what I said long ago. What happens up there can happen down here. And I believe that we may be seeing that in real time today. The increase in criminal activity in Stanley County and the Tri-County area, I believe, is a direct result of yet another Democrat party and leftist ideological bent that we've been dealing with. And of course, I'm gonna give you my unvarnished righteous opinion on what I believe is the cause of this cultural and moral breakdown, not only in our towns and counties, but across the country. So now it's time to say goodbye, folks. For now. But don't worry. Dry your eyes. I'll be back again next month. Remember, freedom never goes out of style, folks. And I'm the coolest old guy wearing it. And for the sake of liberty, keep doing what you're doing. Resist. Booyah!